Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Feedbrain Radio. I hope you're doing well. I hope you'll go and check out Gene Wars Part 1, uploading as we speak. Uh, it is, uh, I think, a very interesting presentation about the degree to which biological selection has an effect not only in the natural kingdom, but in the unnatural kingdom of human kingdoms. <laughs> so I hope you will check out Gene Wars Part 1 is out. And uh, we are working at finishing up the truth about marriage, which is also the truth about divorce or how to have your own testicles filleted and served to you on a fine platter of lawyerly slicing. Uh, so uh, I hope you'll check these things out. Of course, please go and subscribe if you can at freedomainradio.com slash donate uh, to help out the show, help spread the word. And let's move straight on to the callers. All right. Well, up first today is Jonathan. He wrote in and said, I just watched the recent What is Property episode, and I think I understand what the caller was trying to get at, although he did so in a painfully confusing way. Maybe a better question would be, what is the difference between a government and a landlord? Let me elaborate. Suppose that in a free society, I buy a tract of land and develop a farm, and through my success, I am able to expand and purchase land around my farm. I then need to hire laborers to help work the land, and this process continues and my workforce becomes large enough that a town develops on my land for my workers. I contract out an apartment complex, doctor, restaurants, etc., but I am careful that in all these agreements, I am still the ultimate owner of the land. How is what I have done fundamentally different from a government? That's from Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, so I'm trying to fundamentally, so first of all, I'm trying to understand what the question is, and then I'd like to understand why it's important before I take a swing at answering it, if that's all right. Sure. So I'm a guy, I, 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 what I, I, let's just say I don't even buy it. I enclose some land, I start producing crops or whatever, right? And I'm very good at it. And so then I hire people to work on my land, and uh, they then build houses nearby. Is that right? Uh, yes. Or you, you allow houses to be developed on the land that you own and, and still stay the owner. So you basically so I would have lease, houses for your workers. I would lease the land out to the workers? Yes. So well, you include why, why, part of their... Why would they want that? I mean, I wouldn't want to build a house on someone else's land because that person could then sort of turn around tomorrow and say, that's it. You're off my land. You're, you know, like, I don't know why anyone would do that. Well, um, farms and ranches do tend to provide uh, like houses as, as a benefit for workers. So it may not, it may yeah, not but say, they're, but they're, hey, you own this like, house, but... But they're like hotels or like hostels or something like that, right? They're like temporary housing for when you're working there. That's not your house that you own, right? Yes. Okay, but, so I'm not sure uh, how you're exactly. I guess what I was – so say I uh, – rather than build my own house, I say to some real estate developer, hey, you can come build this. You can keep 90% of the profits and – um, you know, I still stay the owner, but I'm leasing this to you indefinitely. Wait, leasing indefinitely? What does that mean? Well, so I'm, I'm leasing you this 
area of land to go and build an apartment complex on in exchange for you giving. Oh, no, no, I understand. I understand the, the building part. Hang on, hang on, Jonathan. I understand the yeah. building part. What does leasing indefinitely mean? Like, does that mean leasing also, for a million years? Does that mean leasing until the end of the universe? What, what does that mean? Well, yeah. So leasing, as long as you keep giving me 10% of the profits, uh, you can keep owning or keep control and keep, uh, you know, your prerogative over what the apartment complex does. And that would be in perpetuity? Yes. But why would anyone want that deal? I mean, why would I want to pay 10% well, of my ownership, or I guess of my rent or the sale of the house or something in perpetuity? And would that be transferable? Could I buy and sell that to someone else? If I decided to sell the house to the person who was in it, would they then be subject to the same restrictions? Again, I'm just trying to understand why somebody would want that deal. Um. Well, I'll say I've got quite a few workers and they need a place to live. I want to provide them a place to live. And so I open it up to bidding so you can have, I mean, it, it could theoretically be a, a profitable venture for the apartment complex developer. You know, they could make a tidy profit off of it. But I would say the no, hang on, hang on. of... No, because if you're, a, if you're a real estate developer, then you have the choice to make houses wherever you want, right? Why would you want to make houses yes. where you didn't end up owning the land and were subject to an infinite tax of 10%? Like you could you could go build because anywhere in, 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 the, in the world, we're talking about a free society, right? So you could go build anywhere in the world. Why would you want to build where you didn't end up with clear ownership of the land and all of your, because it would really reduce the value of your house, right? So let's say it's going to cost you a million dollars to build these accommodations. Well, you're going to have to pay, I don't know, like, a, what, $20,000 a year or $30,000 a year. You don't have clear ownership. You can't buy and sell it. So the value of what, you're produ what you've created is diminished by having to pay this 10% in perpetuity, in perpetuity, which means that over 10 years, that's 100%. So every, every 10 years, you're just giving away a full year of income. And so given that you can build anywhere... Why would you want to get involved in this kind of lease arrangement when you could go and build something and have the land free and clear or pay a sort of upfront cost and, and have the land free and clear? Well, because uh, that's where the workers are, or that's where the people are. Well, I understand well, I, that. I, um, I understand that, but yeah. you can build anywhere in the world and have free and clear ownership, a clear title transfer. No legal complications. No one who, I assume that in these kinds of deals, there's revocation clauses, right? Because, and, and what if the guy who signs the deal dies? Or what if the corporation changes hands? Or what if the corporation goes bankrupt? There's a huge amount of uncertainty in these kinds of deals, wherein you might end up in court for years trying to figure out who actually owns this and who has title for it. It seems like a huge quagmire, and I can't quite figure out why someone would want to get involved in it if they could just go build anywhere. Um, well, I guess if I had a, uh, an enticing enough workforce that, that was looking for housing um, and say I gave you a monopoly over all of the housing in the or within the nearest 30 miles or so, I mean, 
let's say an entrepreneur finds that as a uh, enticing enough opportunity, I give them, say I only charge them 1% of their, uh, their profits and it was transferable. They could, you know, I ultimately owned the land, but, uh, you know, as long as I get my 1% cut of their profit, that they can build whatever they want. They can, um, you know, they can transfer it to other people. So I'm just trying to say like fundamentally, I guess, I kind of see that as a similar situation to um, what, say, a city government does. Oh, so, boy. Uh, okay, okay. Well, so, okay, well, well you, you, you're just sidestepping what I'm talking about in terms of the legal complications, number one. Number two, if you're the land developer and you, like, if you own the land and you want to build housing on your land, generally you just hire people to do it and pay them and then keep the land and the profits yourself, Right. I mean, if, if I want to, um, if I want a garden shed in my garden, uh, I don't come up with some complicated leasing arrangement with the landscaping company, right? I'll just get them to build it and pay it or go to the store and pick up some prefab wooden shed and, and put it up myself, right? These kinds of complicated lease arrangements would be in a free society. I mean, they're engaged into now for various tax reasons and for various, you know, 99 year lease from the government arrangements and so on. But uh, generally, if you wanted uh, to to build housing on your land, you just hire someone to build the housing on your land. And if you didn't want to do that, I as the entrepreneur would say, well, wait a minute, why do you want me to get involved in some complicated legal arrangement with you if you're so confident that there's so much profit in this? Why aren't you doing it yourself? Like <laughs> many years ago when I was first in business, I got the phone call. I don't know how these weasels find you, but they do. I got this phone call. And um, it was, you know, the, 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 the sleazy guy at the stockbroker company. Hey, man, we've got a stock that's about to hit the roof. And you're some anonymous guy I got from a phone book. I want to share my great good fortune with you. And it's like, what? If you're absolutely certain the stock is going to go through the roof, why are you telling me? <laughs> because I'm just going to buy it and drive the price up. Why don't you just buy it yourself? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, she's the hottest woman around. She's totally easy, totally brilliant, and will be with you for life. I want you to date her. <laughs> so, um, uh, so what you're saying doesn't make a lot of sense in a free society economically. Uh, and um, uh, so from that standpoint, it seems extremely unlikely that anybody with any business experience would get involved in this. My other question is, why would you even have the land? Like, you have to have enclosed and worked the land in order to have possession of the land. What that means is that you've planted crops or you've built houses there or built roads or done something to transform the land so that it produces something. So if you've already enclosed and worked the land, why would you want to get rid of everything you've invested in that land, whether it's, you know, clearing the soil and, and uh, or clearing the land and, and turning the soil and fertilizing it and setting up your irrigation systems and all the stuff that you need for uh, crops or, or whatever, right? Uh, why would you then want to tear that up and put down houses? So you don't just sort of snap your fingers and get 100 acres in a free society. You have to enclose it. You have to do something to transform it. Otherwise, it reverts back to common ownership. If the common law approach is what would make sense, and I think it, it is. So you've already built this land. You've already worked this land. That's how you own it. 
So why on earth would you then rip up everything you've built in order to create some complicated lease arrangement with someone else uh, who could make much more money in a much more stable and secure way by building the same house, say, 500 feet over where you haven't, where you don't own the land, right? So let's say you have, you've, you've created and you've enclosed 100 acres and you're employing 200 people, let's say. Sure. Well, the, the, the best place to build those houses would not be in your 200 acres. It would be 201, right? Just beyond where your fences are and when your claim of ownership is, that's where you would build the houses, right? Because what you're saying to a, 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 a building developer or a land developer is you're saying, okay, you can build your house inside my land. Now, you have to clear away all of these crops and all this kind of stuff first. You've got to test the soil because we've been using, I don't know, fertilizers and chemicals and insecticides and so on. And you don't want to build your houses for people where kids play in the yard and eat the dirt kind of thing. So you, you, I want you to build inside my 200 acres, the, the, um, uh, the, um, the houses for my workers. And it's going to be a complicated lease arrangement that if anything ever happens to me or the corporation or you or the corporation, nobody's going to know who owns what for years and years. And it's going to cost you tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills to try and sort this out. It's going to be tied up for years. Who knows, right? Or you can build just outside my property where you don't have to pay me a penny for the land. There's no complicated lease arrangements. And you can uh, have clear and title ownership, which is transferable and is not mixed in with anybody else's ownership. So what I'm saying is why on earth would somebody build inside the 200 acres when they could build just outside the 200 acres with much less cost, much less expense, much less uh, lost labor and investment in the existing land and with clear and transferable title of ownership without any complications? Okay. Um, so, I mean, that's, it's, I mean, subcontracting out or contracting out is a common business practice, right? So if I'm a, say I'm, I'm Apple, I don't want to, you know, get in the manufacturing or the, um, the actual like semiconductor manufacturing business. You know, I want to let the people who are good at that do that and I'll design the chip. So I'll, some, I'll let them manufacture the chips and I'll just buy them from them. I'll tell them what I want and I'll buy it. And so being able to say, hey, I want to provide housing for my workers and then saying, hey, I'm, I'm a farmer. I'm a no, rancher. no, wait, 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 wait. Wanna... Hang on. Yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Okay. So we're going into a big area here, which I'm certainly no expert in. And uh, Mike, if you can maybe look this up as we go along, that'd be great. First of all, they're not Apple's workers if they're subcontracted, right? It means that there's some other place that's building something and then delivering stuff to right. uh, to to Apple. And sometimes it's called um, just in time. Like when I reach for it, I want it to be there, not sooner, not later. I don't want it sooner because then I have to pay to store it. I don't want it later because it slows down my production. It's called just in time manufacturing. There's a variety of other ways of of setting it up. But if you subcontract. You don't enter into complicated legal arrangements, usually, unless there's some weird laws that you have to satisfy on the part of the government. But if, you, if you're Apple and you want other people to make the screens for your iPhones, let's say, then you say to the people, okay, we'll take bids for how much it's going to cost you to produce these screens for the iPhones, and then we're going to choose. I've been involved in Lord knows how many of these kinds of bids, so... And you put in what's called an RFP, or you put out a call for an RFP, a request for proposal. You 
people then say, here's what I'm going to do and so on. And then you choose the winning person and then they go and build the thing and they deliver it to you. In the same way, you you know, you 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 send your subcontracting out Amazon and whoever's on Amazon go make this thing and or get it for me and send it to me. But you don't enter into complicated legal arrangements. You don't say, okay, well, I want you to make this uh, gorilla glass for my iPhone. So I'm going to buy this tract of land. I'm going to build a bunch of stuff on it. Then I want you to come in and knock all the stuff I've built on it down. Then I want you to build the plant, but I'm still going to own the land. So by, when you build the plant, which might be a $10 billion plant for all I know, I'm still going to own the land and things could change. Um, there may be bailout clauses that are going to be really complicated. So your entire $10 billion investment might turn to nothing if there's some legal problem with the ownership of the land. Uh, and then I'm going to charge you uh, 5% of your gross profits and keep hold of the land while you manufacture. Like this doesn't happen in the business world. It's like you give me how much it's going to cost me per Gorilla Glass for my iPhone. And then if I choose you, you just hand it to me when I've got, I want to slap one on an iPhone. But there's not these complicated subleasing arrangements as far as I know. Okay. Well, then back up a step. What if, what if uh, instead of trying to do some complicated leasing agreement, I just do kind of like a, uh, a homeowners association thing where, you know, you own the land, I will rent you this land and I want to be 10% partner in your business or in the, the business of contracting out housing. Um, I, I'm sorry. So I don't know what we're talking about. Are we okay. still talking about a guy with a farm so, or? Yeah. So say I take this farm and I say, Hey, I'll sell you five acres to put an apartment complex on with the agreement that I get to be 10% partner in this venture. Um, so I, I decide it's worthwhile uh, and a, uh, a developer decides it's worthwhile to supply this demand of, of worker housing. It's not worthwhile. It's not. Listen, I mean, I assume you've not run a business or anything like that, right? No. Not yet. Okay. I assume you're not sort of big on real estate law or contract law, but it's not worthwhile because we already talked, I already talked about, and if you want to rebut it, that's fine, but you can't pretend I didn't say it, right? We got 200 acres. Okay. Why on earth would you buy already owned and developed land to build the houses when you could build them right outside these 200 acres and have it yours free and clear? Well, the, that could be owned by a farm right next to mine. I mean, it's it's not necessarily uninhabitable land right outside of mine. It's it could be other farms. Oh, so, so all of not, the farm, all of the land around this farm is also owned. Yeah, so it's not necessarily just uninhabited area, and I'm just right in the middle of it. Say I've got neighboring farms all around it, and so you know, instead of it just being free, you can. Uh, put a fence around an area and build an apartment complex wherever you want, there's, there's a limited supply of, of available land. Wait, limited or, or non? Cause well, you said it's all well, around. Okay. So the only other available land, if this guy wants to uh, develop a, uh, or if this guy wants to develop anything is other farms around mine. So it's it's so not necessarily how far free. do these uh, sorry how far do these farms extend? Let's say we got one in the middle for two hundred acres. Uh, how many farms are there around? I'll say it's uh, I don't know thirty miles. So an, enough distance that it's worthwhile for the workers to want to 
Like they would choose to live on the farm if I provide housing. Fantastic. So you would then provide housing for them. You would get someone yes. to come in and build some houses uh, on your land for your workers. But I still, there would be no, but here's the lease and you can own 10% or I'm a partner. I mean, you just get someone to come in and build it for you. I mean, why, why, why wouldn't you? It's your land. Why would you want to sort of divvy it up and give it to someone else on some perpetual lease and share in the profits and put all of your risk of, of complications from a legal ownership standpoint and just build the houses and, and deduct the cost of it from your workers' wages, um, knowing that they're going to spend less living on the land and going to work there than if they had to drive for 30 miles and rent somewhere else. So it's still better for them to, to get housing where the cost of the housing is deducted from their wages than it is for them to live off-site. I mean, that's nice and easy, isn't it? I don't see why you wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, I guess I was thinking more of the uh, the perspective of, hey, I'm a farmer. I don't want to get involved in, you know, trying to be a housing developer also. Kind of the same well, of way. of course not. Hey, that's hey, why you pay people to do it for you. <laughs> I don't want to be a dentist, so I go to a dentist and pay the dentist to clean my teeth. Yeah, so I'm I'm a farmer. I can have a real estate developer come and make this stuff for me, or come and yep, he like, comes and builds build the this and manage Absolutely. it. Yeah, no, no. Well, maybe build and manage okay. it, but it's your houses on your land, right? The same way that the superintendent doesn't own the building, right? So you would hire someone to come in and build the um, the houses on your land, but uh, it's still your land, and then it's your houses, right? Okay, right. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. And then that kind of leads into my second question or kind of along wait, the wait, same wait. train of thought. Hang on, hang on, hang on. How do, we, how do we just end the first question? I'm not sure what the resolution this year is. So I guess that, that wouldn't necessarily be a realistic situation. I, I'll accept your, your reasoning that that wouldn't be a realistic situation. In a free society, again, you know, when you have weird corporate taxes and write-offs, I mean, there can be some weird stuff that happens in terms of, uh, you know, well, we'll get this shell company to own this. I mean, but in a free society, uh, economic efficiency would virtually dictate that you would not, n nobody want to build where they don't have clear ownership. Uh, and uh, you don't get clear ownership by commingling stuff with complicated contracts. Okay, good. So second okay. question. All right. Second question is um, about... Uh, initiation of force for property rights. Um, so here, I guess the, the example that I kind of have in mind is, let's say I'm you know, kind of related. So I am an apartment complex owner. I do clearly own the apartment complex. And this family or one of the families stops paying their rent. Um, I guess it, and, and you know, they're not, they're not violently uh, doing anything wrong. They just stopped paying their rent and they refused to leave. I, uh, then <laughs> since they haven't, have they initiated force against me? What would, what would, yep. Yeah, look, no, because, because, because they're using your property without your consent. So for instance, uh, if I have a vagina and I invite some man into my vagina uh, to make the beast with two backs with me, that's called lovemaking. But if he is within my vagina without my consent, that's called rape. So the use of someone else's property without their consent, no consent can be given after the fact and so on, but the use of somebody's property without their consent is an act of aggression. It, it, whether it's their body or their apartment or whatever, I mean, 
because if they're paying $1,000 a month and that's what they agreed to, and then they stop paying the $1,000 a month, then they're stealing $1,000 a month. And if I, if I lease a car and I agree to pay, I don't know, 200 bucks a month for the car, and then I stop paying the lease, but I keep the car, I'm a car thief. And uh, that's very aggressive, uh, of course. Okay, but then would I be, would I as the, uh, the landowner be justified in guess, initiating or using retaliatory force to kick them out of the apartment? Well, does a woman have the right to use force against a potential rapist? Yeah, absolutely. Right, because the potential okay. rapist is using her property without her consent, which is an act of aggression. Okay. Right, that makes sense. Okay, and then kind of uh, you know, still, still related. So say a, uh, I buy a home in an area that has a housing or homeowners association that part of the... I guess part of the contracts for buying the house. I'm is, sorry, sorry. Uh, just sorry to just before you get to the next question. Sure. If, uh, in a free society, the the initiation of force that that is not in direct, immediate self defense would be highly, highly, highly discouraged by any dispute resolution organizations, right? So right. if you have a situation where people have signed a contract to, uh, let's say, stay in an apartment. And they, don't, they stop paying their rent, right? They're in breach of their contract, and they're now Ill illegally in the apartment, and they're stealing the rent from the uh, property owner. I can guarantee you that there is no dispute resolution organization in the world that would say, job one. SWAT team with big guns in through the window. Flash bombs into the baby's crib. Oh, wait, that's the American police. <laughs> right? Headshot. <laughs> right? I right. mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do anything like that. And what they would do is they'd wait till the people were out and they'd change the locks. Or they would shut off the water uh, and shut off the heat. Or what. They would do something. And, and they would say, listen, uh, we've got this halfway house that's, that we could take you and, and, and so on, right? They would not use force. They would use everything except that because that is so volatile and so dangerous and such a, an escalation that um, immediate self-defense, yeah, some guy's coming to rape you, blow his head off. I mean, I don't mind if there's one headless rapist in the world. I, in fact, could do a little Irish jig on that. But when it comes to things like um, I, I leased a car and I'm not paying my lease, I mean, the repo guys wait until you're asleep, right? They, they wait until the car is, they follow you until the car is unattended and they whisk it away, right? Okay, they right. they steal kinda, it back. Yeah, kind of like an office space where the, the, the worker who had been fired like five years ago and due to a glitch in the payroll system was still getting paid. Like, well, what are you going to do to resolve it? Well, we fixed the glitch. Yeah. Now you may try. You may try and get. Uh, you may try and get that money back because the man was fired and and so on. But but it's the government is like guns, guns first. <laughs> you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so, in in a free society, I would not want a heavily armed dispute resolution organization. I mean, and 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 imagine you're in charge of this dispute resolution organization. You know, the the problem with violence is shit happens 
and random shit happens all the time. So you, you, you've triple checked the address of the, the place you're supposed to go in and, and get people out of the apartment at gunpoint. Oh, GPS glitch. You went to the wrong place. It happens to the police all the time. All the time. They're going into the wrong house with their flashbangs and their SWAT teams and all that kind of stuff, right? It happens all the time. And right. so you, you wouldn't want that kind of stuff. Plus, SWAT teams are very expensive. Plus, what if someone has a heart attack when you come in through the window or pound through the door or something, and then you've got a dead person on your hand? How's that going to look for, for things? Uh, suppose somebody uh, is, is insane, in there, like it's just some crazy old, you know, Mister Butterworth up there, uh, who's uh, you know regularly nibbling the ears off rats and sharpening his scimitar. And uh, this this happened in uh, in New York um, some years ago, where this this crazy woman, um, the cops went in and she just lunged at them with a giant butcher knife. Uh, you you just don't want those kinds of situations. They're very expensive to maintain, incredibly bad publicity. Lord knows how many lawsuits in a free society might be launched against you. Genu generally bad reputation. Like if you sort of, if you see, you know, two flyers, you move to some new neighborhood and like DROA puts a flyer in your mailbox. DROB puts a flyer in your mailbox. DROA says, hey, do you know that DROB killed nine customers last year? And DROB is, hey, man, we killed nine customers last year. I mean, who are you going to go with? I think the not dead customer DRO would probably be the way to go. So there's so many, 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 many options to deal with um, property crimes that do not involve anybody taking the safety off a revolver that um, it's only because we associate these property violations with the government now that we have all these uh, kinds of problems. But uh, I, uh, you know, you you cannot have people breaching contracts in a free society. I mean, you can't. I mean, that's not how a civilized society works. You make a commitment, you got to stick with it. But um, there's not going to be guys doing ninja head rolls, heavily armed in through the windows. Uh, there's so many, many, many ways that you can deal with those situations that are going to resolve it no problem. And um, what's the cost of a, uh, you know, of a SWAT team, you know, keeping them uh, trained and armed and ready to go? Uh, it's millions of dollars a year. You know, we're talking about a thousand dollar a month apartment. Uh, there's so many different ways that you can deal with this stuff that don't involve. But, but of course, we're so used to the government that that's um, all, all we can sort of, not you, but I mean, most people, that's all they can think of. Oh, you're going to shoot people for staying? No, <laughs> of course not. There's so many better ways to deal with it. Okay. And then for like a, uh, homeowners association type thing, you know, mm. what, what recourse would in a free society, would a, uh, like a homeowners association say that collects a hundred dollars a month for, for each house in the neighborhood, you know, what, what recourse would they have if one of the houses just stops paying? I don't know. So I'm trying to think of a, a free society. What, um, homeowners association would would that involve like i don't know much about homeowners um, homeowners association so i don't know what what are they providing that people want to pay 100 bucks a month for um say like a neighborhood pool or whatever i guess would the, oh, like the condo fees, be... that kind of like a, sort of like a condo yeah. fee yeah okay 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 so you mean if somebody doesn't uh, doesn't pay 
yeah, I guess what what recourse? Because then that would be a case where you know they don't they wouldn't have the right since I still own the house. You know, somebody wouldn't have the right to just come up and change my locks, would they? I, mean, I wouldn't think so. Well, I don't know because I wouldn't I wouldn't know how the contract would have been written. But um, you know, the the first thing that people would do is come over in a friendly way and say, you know, hey, what's going on? I mean, are you out of money? I mean. Uh, we don't because everything's so confrontational in a state of society. We don't know just how friendly people can be. Maybe the guy's sick, right? In which case, gosh, I'm, I'm, you know, people know him in the neighborhood, right? So, you know, maybe he's uh, he's um, let the kids play with the fire hydrant in front of his house, or you know, maybe he returns frisbees. Uh, maybe he's not like some scary ass Boo Radley in a tree somewhere. He's like a nice guy in the neighborhood. And he's not paid his homeowner's bill, so people go over, knock on his door and say, what's the matter? And he's like, oh, I've been sick, right? And then what do people do? They say, oh, man, don't pay till you get better, right? And um, and and they chip in. They, they'll help him out. They'll like, yeah, okay, we'll pay your homeowner's association. It's not like you're using the pool because you're sick. So, you know, and, and let's come and mow your lawn and, and let's... Um, uh, paint your house and let's drive you to the hospital. This is what nice people in a civilized society do with each other. So the idea that, um, well, he hasn't paid, right? change the locks and throw the multiple sclerosis victim out into the street. I just don't think that's how a civilized society would occur. There would have to be, um, I mean, so if he was, let's just say he was just some random jerk. I mean, that's sort of weird, right? Because you would have a vetting process before you um, before you sell a place to people, right? Because you wouldn't want <laughs> you wouldn't want any riffraff moving in here. What? What? But you so if you if you've got um, some enclosed area, then you want a vetting process. And of course, in a free society, you have you have a vetting process. And so people will have reputations that they've built up and cultivated for many years in a free society. You know, we pay our bills on time. Or we've spent 30 years being nice. Uh, we have a niceness rating or whatever it is from our previous neighbors and so on. And so you're going to get people in who've got the money and who are nice and conscientious, right? Now, if something terrible happens to someone, uh, they lose their money in some strange asteroid mining incident or something, then because they're conscientious, then they will uh, immediately come forward and say, something's happened. I really have to, um, I can't pay this month. Um, I'm aware that I'm now in breach of contract. Here's my plan. Like, I don't know about you. I've bounced a check or two in my day, um, which means, you know, here's a check for X amount of dollars. Don't have enough money in the account. And then, you know, or, you know, I've written a date. It's called stale dated where I wrote accidentally the year before, you know, those January checks or whatever. Right. And so the, you call the people up and, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. Like I did this once um, uh, after I broke up with a girlfriend. I was um, I was renting a little room in, in a guy's place and uh, I bounced a check on him. I had the money. I just bounced a check on him. And I was like, I'm so I'm so sorry. I mean, how much did it cost you? Um, what was your time? Okay, I'm going to add that. I'm going to go and get this check. I'm going to get it certified. In other words, the money's taken out of my account. It becomes a money order. I promise this will not happen again. Uh, I've made it up to you. And he was perfectly fine with it. I mean, appreciated that. And that's what you do when you're a, a decent human being, right? So the idea that someone just stops paying and, well, what, how do we escalate from here? 
Well, first of all, you get people in who are going to be responsible. Now, so they're going to pay if they have the money. If for some weird reason they don't have the money, they're going to come and sit down with you ahead of time and say, here's my problem. And if people like you in the neighborhood, they'll help you out. They'll support you. They'll they'll chip in. You know, if there's 20 houses in the neighborhood, right? I mean, I'm sure that people can come up with just a little bit of money <laughs> to help five bucks a month or whatever, right? To, to help you out. So... Uh, so that is the way that things work in a, a free society. If there's someone who just is a, just suddenly wakes up and becomes a jerk, which I think is quite unlikely personality is remarkably inert in people as a whole, even people who strive to change. So, But let's say someone just wakes up and is a jerk. Well, um, you will have how you deal with it in uh, in the contract. And what I would assume is that uh, they still get to own their house. They just don't have any access to the uh, common resources that like the pool or the playground or whatever it is that his dues are uh, paying for. There may be some free rider benefits. Maybe there's security uh, that you can't sort of deny the guy or whatever. Uh, but uh, and, and other things you can do. I mean, there may be stipulations like, OK, no water, no heat, whatever it is. Right. Until you sort it out. But um you know, in my experience, I mean, I've, you know, there's that old song, uh, I'm going to love you like nobody's loved you. And there's a great line in it where it says, um, days may be cloudy or sunny. We're in or we're out of the money, which is, uh, to me, this is just kind of Vegas thing, you know, like, hey, we got money this month. Oh, man, we're broke this month. And um, uh, that kind of stuff, when when people are in and out of the money, uh, and they're reasonable people and they're decent people, they'll come and make, they'll come with a plan. I can't pay. I know I can't pay. I'm so sorry I said I would pay. But be proactive. Uh, call call up, um, sit down, have a face-to-face, say what the plan is going to be, and most likely everybody will be fine. Okay, right. That makes sense. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, man. Up next is Paul. Paul wrote in and said, all countries part of the UN should agree that to put no restrictions on who can live and work in their country. In other words, 193 countries around the world will give anyone an indefinite work visa that wants one. This would force nations to quickly create great living and working conditions for their citizens. If they don't, mass exodus would occur and the nation would lose its tax base and be forced to become absorbed by a more prosperous and equitable nation. This way, all nations will improve themselves through competition, principles of free market applied to dominions. My theory is that ultimately the number of countries would probably drop, but a more equitable united world would emerge. So my question is, why isn't this done currently? That's from Paul. Why isn't there the right of free motion and mobility across the world? Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Good, Paul. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. So, uh, yeah, it's a random thought. I mean, it's not something that I could say I have experience uh, in. I, I've done some traveling, and um, uh, it was something, I, you know, I've, uh, I have this habit of always coming up with random ideas and sharing them with people. And the only criticism I got to this one was like, well, what would you do about brain drain? You know, what would you do about, like, essentially kind of what happened with with the US in the early 20th century when we had a lot of great minds sort of moving to the United States because conditions were terrible in their country and the US was like welcome here 
Um, at least that's a simplified version of it. But um, uh, and some argue that it's through this visa system that the U.S. has become such a great place uh, and prosperous place to live in. And so I wonder why. Why what, do a we great limit prosperous mobility? place to live in? Well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand. Was this Americans who, who were telling you that America is a great and prosperous place to live in? Have they not been around, say, for the last six years? <laughs> well, it, I think uh, in terms of uh, innovation and advancements in technology and living conditions, um, things, things of that nature. Obviously, there's a, we still have a long way to go. Wait, no, hang on. I mean, America lost like 40% of its wealth in the last crash and has only stayed afloat by massive amounts of money printing and buying up of its own treasuries and stuff. No, no, no. Totally agree. So I'm not sure where this America is. Nothing but prosperous. It's like, well, you know, it's like (laughs) pulling the coke addict. Nothing but happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Until. No, I agree. Okay. All right. So um, the question is, why doesn't this happen or why shouldn't it happen? I don't know why it doesn't happen. I mean, I don't. I can't possibly know that. The question is: Is it a good idea? Should it happen? You know, is would well, that be? I mean, would that look, be a positive? No, let me. This is, yeah. They're great questions. They're great questions. Let me. Let me just ask you a couple of questions. So, I think America has taken in. Let's put it as nicely as possible. America has taken in twenty-five percent of the entire population of Mexico. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think this has an effect on American culture and American politics? Absolutely. And what do you think that effect has been or effects? It's more than one, I guess. Well, I've listened to a lot of your uh, podcasts and, and videos, Stefan. So I have a pretty good sense, at least uh, from what you've explained, that um, a lot of the immigration policy is to a large extent politically driven. Um, you know, it's something Democrats are fond of because it gains them votes. Um, but also it's had a huge impact on, um, you know, the available workforce that is willing to take on work that doesn't provide conditions, at least as the media would put it, most Americans uh, would want to accept, you know, such as farming and things of that sort. Um, and so, Consequently, what, what, what that has done is it's put sort of um, an entire segment of our population uh, out of work. Um, you, you've, you've been much more eloquent than I have just now in, in explaining how this all works, so I won't go into detail. But I think that's essentially some of the uh, negatives that you could say have come out of um, that sort of mass exodus from, from Mexico. Do you think that... Mexico has cultural specifics that are widely different from, say, traditional English cultures. Uh, Sounds like you're asking if their culture is different. Of course course it is, yeah. And in what ways would you say traditional British culture. I mean, England now, whites are a minority in London, the city that I grew up in. So I'm sort of talking about sort of more traditional Anglo-Saxon, wasp, Protestanty kind of stuff. In what way would you say that Mexican culture as it stands now is, is diverse? This is tough questions. I don't have all the answers. I'm just curious what you think. Yeah. In what ways do you think that Mexican culture is different from um, Anglo-Saxon culture? 
Well, I'm originally from South America, so I can speak from some bit of experience, although I'm not from Mexico. But uh, one of the things that I admire about uh, South American cultures in general is there is a, a much stronger appreciation of the family unit, uh, that that is a really important part of the culture, uh, which is completely, and I'm, I guess I'm giving you this answer in terms of what are things that are contrasting from the North American culture. And that would be the first thing that sticks out. No, in no, mind. sorry. We were talking about British. Oh. North American culture is a challenge because of the melting pot stuff. I'm talking about more sort of more traditional, homogenous, uh, um, homogenous uh, Anglo-Saxon culture. So Europe versus U.S.? or uh, Western Europe, British. I mean, until the 1965, like 96, 95, 96 percent of Americans were Western European you know, the vast majority of them were Protestants and so on, right? So America has radically changed over the past uh, 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, that's why I'm sort of talking about more traditional Anglo-Saxon culture. Mm. What are the differences? Hmm. Uh, I, the differences that I've observed, at least within people that I know, because I have a lot of friends that, have, that are immigrants from different parts of the world, uh, some friends, even just from Canada, have, have moved to the U.S. Um, uh, some friends from Europe and and friends from South America. And, and the cultural differences, in my view, at least just from personal experience, are very minor. You know, obviously there's language differences. Even if you're both speaking English, there's different slang and, and uh, accents and uh, an appreciation for different kinds of activities that, you know, you might not even be familiar with or not appreciate a whole lot, um, whereas they might appreciate those kinds of activities. But uh, all in all, um, uh, it's, it's small stuff in my view, not, nothing that I would, um, I don't, I haven't yet perceived something that is really a, a big difference. Really? Okay. But that, that could, that could be just my, you know, lack of travel and, and, and it, no, I don't think it would be. And I don't, I don't have the answers to this either, but when you look at the list of significant contributions to world science, world, world literature, world philosophy, uh, and, and so on, why do you think it is so concentrated on Western Europe? Um, I think a lot of our, our history that we know of uh, has to do with the history that's been recorded. So um, while most recorded history seems to be concentrated there, I don't completely assume that that's where all history has taken place. So it could just False be... False dichotomy. No, that, that's equivocation. Listen, you've got to do better than that if we're going to have this conversation. <laughs> okay, uh, you, you understand I'm in no way arguing that outside... <laughs> of Western Europe, there's no space-time continuum and no history and no time, right? <laughs> sure. You under, like, we got to do better than that, right? Okay, Let, okay. Let's step it up a little okay. bit, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Sorry, so you're not talking to your average muggle, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's move it up a little, right? NBA okay. time, baby. Okay. Uh, when you say that it's just stuff that was recorded, do you think that in other places in the world there were these... Uh, elaborate civilizations that left no record? Yeah, I think it's possible. 
I mean, I don't think I don't think a lot about it, but um, okay. And how would we know whether that's hang on, hang on, hang on? How would we know whether that would be true or not? uh, We'd have to find out. I mean, there's no null hypothesis there, right? Because it's like, well, (laughs) there are these civilizations that left no evidence. How do we know? They left no evidence. How is that different from yeah, there's yeah. not being a civilization that left no evidence? There's no difference, right? We, there's no null hypothesis to that, right? Yeah, yeah. I agree that it's... it's but it's a, unlikely. Yeah. It's very unlikely that there would be these giant civilizations that, that produced Shakespeare's and, and Dickens and Beethoven's and Francis Bacon's and, you know, all these Aristotle and so on. Yeah. But left although, no trace. Right? Although, haven't you thought about... Um, I mean, I think I thought we had. Uh, so, haven't you thought about, for example, you know, when the when the Greeks were having this conflict with the with the Persian Empire? Why why is it that we have so much more? I don't know if we have more recorded or if it's just been uh, disseminated more more history about what you know what, the 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 Greek side of the story more than the Persian side of the story. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no idea whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but because uh, the Persians, I'm trying to think sense. of. I'm trying to think of uh, great advances in civilization that were put forward by the Persians. It could just be Eurocentric bias. I don't know, but um, right. none sort of popped to mind. If you know any, I'm certainly happy to hear. Yeah. Well, as far as I know, they were they were the first to create. Um, massive uh, irrigation systems and also aqueducts that would transport water from kingdom to kingdom. I don't know if they're called kingdoms, but from realm to realm uh, under, under the ground. I mean, they were desert dwellers, so they needed to figure out how to do, you know, how to deal with the water problem. And they did. They had these major aqueducts that uh, transported water from across, you know, many, many miles. Yeah, no, I get it. And yeah. beavers build dams. That's not what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> no, I mean, it, that's not what I'm talking about. A giant, giant structures are, like, the pyramids were not marks of civilization, but of despotism. I'm talking about incredibly powerful, fantastic, world-changing civilization advancing humanity saving ideas like philosophy like logic uh like empiricism like the scientific method like uh double blind medical testing like the free market <laughs> you know like uh republics and so on right uh, and separation of church and state uh and so on right Th- these are the kinds of things that uh, i'm i'm talking about mm-hmm. not they had big bridges that carried water, which is nice and all, but not uh, really foundationally part of what I would call massive contributions to the moral and civilized and economic progress of the species. Yeah, philosophy, you know, I'm sure they had their own uh, um, set of contributors there. Uh, I know that mathematics was a big thing, but uh, yeah, I agree with your earlier point. That this is not really, um, really the point we're trying to get at anyway. I'm trying no, to remember your original question. It is for me. Okay. No, it is for me. So what was the Maybe original question? Maybe it's not question? the point you're trying to get at. What was the question? Well, the... Um, what were... Uh, the question, the question, because you're saying, well, why aren't all countries... Why, well, should all countries be open to everyone? Right, and right, we were right. talking about cultural differences between Mexico and traditional Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the contributions of Anglo-Saxon culture to the world, to my knowledge, are unmatched by any other culture. And it's not even like there's a close second. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that, 
I could speculate. I'm no expert. But those are the facts as far as I've been able to understand it. And it's not just because, well, I grew up in that culture and every culture thinks there's the best, right? From, <laughs> from a space alien perspective, in terms of the moral progress of the species uh, and the economic progress of the species, the scientific progress of the species, uh, and so on, um, it oh. is the, uh, the, the sort of Western European Anglo-Saxon culture. I mean, Anglo-Saxon's a bit bit localized, right? Obviously, the Greeks did a huge amount as well. I have a theory. And, I have a theory. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I know that, you know, when you study early civilizations, and right, right about that time when we switched sort of from tri tribe to city-state kind of uh, paradigm shift, um, there was obviously a lot of fighting and a lot of... Uh, uh, tribal warfare. I mean, the the history of of China is really well recorded, and in fact, it's probably the oldest recorded history um, that's you know that, uh, that that we have access to, and it really reflects this sort of time period when we're kind of making that transition from tribal uh, community to civilized community, for lack of a better term. And I know that people who who study this observe that these. Uh, these tribes, they, they would, they wouldn't just take over a tribe and, and kill everybody. That would sort of defeat the point. You want to absorb their resources, right? And grow your tribe in a way. Um, but in the process of doing this, they would also not only acquire tangible physical resources, the people, the, the raw materials they had, but they would also acquire their technology. Um, and so it, it's almost like, um, <laughs> kind of like breeding, but in terms of culture, uh, cultural breeding, but through rape. <laughs> so tribes would just invade and fight, and there was all this warring going on. These tribes would eventually coalesce into larger tribes. We'd get into civilizations, and civiliz you know, civilizations would fight with each other, and the same pattern would repeat itself. You would you would destroy the the the, the other guy's army. You would take over a lot of their resources and a lot of their technology. Um. And so, you know, maybe maybe the Anglo-Saxon race just happened to be the strongest. You know, maybe they just happened Wait, to be... Wait, are you saying that the contributions of the Anglo-Saxon ra race <laughs> have been violence? No, no, no. Don't put words in my mouth. You said strongest, and you're talking about conquest. I don't think that's through chess, right? So well, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just no, trying no. to understand I, what you're saying. I'm sort of explaining this in terms of principles of, of, uh, of selection. Um, but but uh, violence... Well, I mean, you can't deny that there was a lot of violence in history, even today. The cultures are fighting each okay, other all again, the time. Okay, again, we have right? to step up our game here, Paul, a little. Of course, I'm not going to deny there was violence in history. But you're basically saying that the Anglo-Saxons had the most impact because they were the most violent. I mean, that's a thesis. I'm not offended no, by it. I mean, no, I don't no, represent no. the Anglo-Saxon race or anything. No, no, no. Because, because when two civilizations war against each other, we, could, we, we can start by the assumption that they're both being equally violent. We don't know who started it. We don't know who's defending, who's attacked, who's the aggressor. So let's just assume for now that if two civilizations are fighting, their level of violence is equal to each other. Um, perhaps but, but nothing that I talked about in terms of contributions of Western Europe to world culture, none of them had anything to do with violence. In fact, they were generally the opposite of violence, right? The free market yep, yep. is the opposite Absolutely. of conquest. Absolutely. And the scientific so, yeah. method is the opposite of religious warfare. Mm -hmm. And philosophy is the opposite of uh, combat, right? Uh, yeah. and, and so what I'm talking about is the contributions are specifically those that tend to diminish uh, violence. 
uh, you know, I mean, the Western yeah, yeah. Europe ended the slave trade uh, around the world. And so uh, every, every example that I pointed out was a reduction in violence and a substitution of a rational or objective methodology, mm -hmm. whether it's price in the free market or the scientific method or double-blind experiments or whatever, or voting. Mm -hmm. It's a substitution of an objective methodology for interpersonal violence. And then you came back and said, <laughs> but they were the most violent. And I'm like, <laughs> we have a disconnect here because you can certainly reject my thesis naturally, of course, yeah, well, right? But you, you can't ignore it. <laughs> this is the constant thing I have to say to people, right? I put forward an argument and then you said – uh, which was basically the, the, the primary contributions, right? I, I, I didn't put any military commanders like Pat no. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Achilles and, and like these were the guys, the, the, the real contributions. They, they, it was, you know, Francis Bacon and Schopenhauer, I don't think I mentioned, but philosophers and, and, and Aristotle and, and uh, all these people. <laughs> uh, th these were not military uh, people. Uh, they were um, thinkers, philosophers, and, and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I put forward a thesis which says that the major contributions are uh, peaceful. And you said, and, and and you said, well, maybe it's because Anglo-Saxons are so violent. And it's like, well, no, 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 you know. I didn't say that. I didn't say they were violent. I said they won the wars. Well, you don't win wars by being peaceful. If I remember the end of the Second World War, uh, in particular, um, I, I, it was not, uh, uh, you know, no Buddhist monks flying over um, Germany, uh, and and you were talking about uh, rape and and I mean this. So let me let me refine. War. You were you're saying that war. You're saying well, Anglo-Saxons are the best of no, war. No, 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 no. So let me finish my thought. So um, I, I guess I'm just wait. No, you can't just say no, 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 no. I mean, do. Did, Mike, did you hear? Did I completely misunderstand? Maybe I misunderstood something. You did say <laughs> that did hear, Mike? the dominant culture will rape and uh, absorb cultures from, uh, or the technology from cultures that it essentially pillages, which involves a lot of violence. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it, 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 there's war, and the winner um, expands, absorbs, and expands the culture, right? So that's spreading through violence, right? It's not spreading through trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And the most successful. So, and so, what were you saying? They weren't the most violent, but they were the most successful at using violence. Well, here, here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. You're, you're um, asking a question that can't be answered because you're essentially saying you, your question was uh, why are most of these great advances coming from the Anglo Saxon race? Whereas the way I see it is that contributions don't come from a race. I never said race. I said culture. Uh, you mentioned the Anglo-Saxon white. Uh, um, that's a, a race. Or I, I personally, I, I don't I, remember saying white. I remember saying Western European, because of course there were lots of great people who've contributed to Anglo-Saxon culture who are not white. But anyway, l absolutely. let's just say culture. I think it's a little easier because there, there are far more people who are white who've not not contributed anything. In fact, have detracted from <laughs> Anglo-Saxon cultural achievements, right. uh, and lots of non-whites who've done fantastically in that realm. So uh, let's just say culture. I'd say. Okay. But, uh, okay. Okay. Um, oh, okay. So so yeah. I I guess I don't I don't believe that we could attribute our um, the successes that the culture has had. And you obviously agree with this to a particular race. Um, but what I was trying to contribute is the observation that in early times and even today, uh, there is still a lot of conflict between nations. Um, and, and, and by the way, the most successful of these nations are the ones that after, um, 
taking uh, ownership or, or possession of that rule uh, will not impose their cultural mandates on them. They essentially embrace the the culture, the religion, and they. It's almost like you know, Coca Cola buying another soda brand and or soda flavor and not changing the name to Coca Cola. You know, it's called Fanta or whatever. I'm sorry, I don't know what we're talking about at the moment. What we talk, the question is um, why? What were the differences between say Mexican culture and Anglo-Saxon culture? I don't know why we're talking about pop. Uh, but I'm happy. I just because I, I when I get lost, I want to stop. Not because I want to interrupt or annoy you, but because That's I don't fine. want to pretend that I know what you're talking about. That's fine. That's it, fine. it could be entirely my failure. No, this is great, sure Stefan. I've been looking forward talk. to the day that I get schooled by the great Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, let's see. So your I'm trying to answer your question, which was you were saying why are most of the uh, I don't know what you said, cultural advances, modern cultural advances coming from the Western culture. That's your question, right? Yeah. Okay. And my answer, the answer I'm trying to get at is that the question is implying a falsehood, which is that your question is implying that, in fact, most of the advances have come from Western civilization. And what I'm trying to get at uh, is that that is not the case if you study history and the nature in with, with Ooh, which. If you study history, now you're getting very passive aggressive, right? Right, because you're saying, okay. well, Steph, if you study history, like, you okay, know, if, if you observe a degree in history, you, right? Use history so as, it's, like, it's kind evidence. of annoying to be, to be lectured to as, you know, well, Steph, you would never have this perspective <laughs> if you'd studied history. No, that's, that's even not more passive aggressive than that's saying Anglo-Saxons are successful because they're violent. No, no, no. I meant it in like the sort of any, if anybody were to study history, not you, Stefan. Um, if okay, anybody, well, then tell, tell me, tell me all of the great ideas that come from non-European cultures. That, that, and I don't mean I don't mean that there's none, right? <laughs> but uh, give me, let's say, something great philosophically that's come out of Mexico. Uh, this is—it's not a subject that I'm uh, particularly well versed in. I—I I don't know Mexican culture very well, but I'm sure that if you were to ask somebody from, from Mexico that question, they could give you plenty okay, of examples. Okay, which country were you from in South? But well, don't don't have to have to tell me. Yeah, but. So you're from South America. So tell me a a, a great South American philosopher. Um, I think most philosophers that I know of in South America have sort of taken on the embodiment of poet. So I don't know if you would qualify that as a philosopher or not. I would not. Uh, um, because I'm we already have the word poet. So yeah, I'm not I'm a student. Sure. I'm not a student of a philosopher in general. Um, so a philosopher. Can you in tell general. me of? Um, hang on a sec. Can you tell me of? Um, let's say a uh, a Greek philosopher. <laughs> well, sure, Socrates. Okay. See, you don't have to study philosophy to know some of the basics. Can you say think of a philosopher who came from Germany? Uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, did I get that right? No, she's uh, from Russia originally. Russia. Uh, but you've heard of Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Yes. Um, uh, Immanuel Kant, I think, uh, mm -hmm. was German. I think Hegel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know the origins of all these guys, but I think that they were Germanic philosophers. Um, could you think of a philosopher who came out of France? Um, uh, Voltaire? See France? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, French, uh, Sartre, Jacques Derrida, um, 
the um, uh, Descartes, yep. uh, uh, right? So, and these are so these are people that you would know. And the question is, can you think of philosophers who come from? Uh, can you think of a great philosopher who came out of Africa? No, but couldn't that just be part of my the indoctrination that I've gone through? Wait, so are you saying that in South America you're indoctrinated according to Anglo-Saxon standards? I mean, good oh, lord. Absolutely. <laughs> we get everywhere. <laughs> we're in the water. <laughs> we're in the air. Well, Global warming? No. Well, yeah. It's all of the outbreath from all the propaganda spewed forth by Western Europeans. Yeah, I don't know. Well, let's assume that you're right. Let's assume that, that in fact, these were the greatest and only greatest philosophers. No, never said only greatest. I'm just saying proportionately. Right? I'm not saying exclusively. I'm saying proportionately. How would we even know? How would we even get close to knowing that? I mean, proportionally, yes, in terms of uh, what we know. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean least, in terms of what we know at, compared at least, to what? <laughs> Things we don't know? <laughs> sure. That's my whole point is that we don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, what's, what's, what's your point, though? What are you getting at? Well, the, the first point is, is we can't argue for the intermingling of all cultures until we know why some cultures are more successful than other cultures. Mm. It, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't know the answer. I have some theories, but I don't think anyone knows the answer. But we cannot counsel for all cultures to mingle until we know, A, whether all cultures are equally um, successful. And I think if we look around the world, I, I think we can look at some cultures that are not very successful. I don't think that a lot of people want ISIS fighters come swarming into their neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm, Is that mm -hmm. a reasonable thing to say? Well, that's why I said that it would have to be nations that are part of the UN. I mean, and, if, and you're not going to let someone who's not in good standing come to your country and you're not going to give that person a visa. So it would be a citizen in good standing from a country that's part of the UN because we can clearly travel freely from country to country. No, no, no. Right? But we're not talking about the methodology of implementation. We're talking about mm -hmm. because what the hell? It's a philosophy show, right? I mean, I, I think I'd fall asleep trying to figure out how visa requirements should work in a country. <laughs> I think so with my listeners. But the, I mean, it's a more fundamental question, which is, yeah. first of all, we are not correct if we think that all cultures are equal. I agree. Right, well, we're just simply not, and and until we know why some cultures are better than others and why some cultures are worse than others, we can't we can't say let's everybody mix, right? So, so for instance, um, I don't know. Let's just make up a culture, um, um, thing thangdom, <laughs> right? Now, thing thangdom culture is unbelievably toxic. Right? They they marry their cousins, they they circumcise their children, they, they corporal punish, they view little girls as, as sexual concubines, uh, uh, particularly those little girls of other races and so on. Mm -hmm. Like they're just really toxic, nasty it's a toxic and nasty culture, superstitious mm -hmm. and violent and female oppressing or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And if we don't know why they are that way then, of course, the great risk is like, let's open our gates to all these thing-thangdoms, right? Mm. The people from thing-thang, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they all come swarming in, and instead of the better culture making them better, they make the better culture worse. 
No, because they just go all to jail because all their activities are illegal in the country. No, they, they don't. To. They don't go to jail. My God, have you not heard what's well, been going on with the Middle Eastern sex grooming gangs in England? They, they, these guys operated for a decade. Yeah, well, that's absurd. I mean, that's that's a that's it's a, not absurd. Yeah. It's not that rare. Mm. So, this is not what happens. So you, so you would okay. So we would have to operate from the from the assumption that. Uh, our legal and enforcement system would just not not uh, work. No, no. To... So you're going. I'm sorry to anno be annoying, Paul. We're going back to like how would it work? What I'm saying is much more fundamentally. Before we even think about how it works, mm -hmm. we need to ask and answer the question: Why are some cultures more successful than others? Mm. Now, unfortunately, no one's allowed to ask that question, and no one's allowed to do any empirical research into that question mm -hmm. because of political correctness and because so of the multicultural emphasis on the word cult, the multicultural religion that is in the West. All cultures are equal and so on, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is not true. I mean, all you have to do is look at the fucking footprints in the world and you know that not all cultures are, are equal. Not mm -hmm. a lot of people from Alba, New York, New York trying to get into Syria. Mm -hmm. And... Until we are actually allowed to ask these questions and do the empirical and objective research as to why some cultures are successful and why some cultures are not successful, the idea of mingling cultures is profoundly irresponsible. I mean, it's like <laughs> there was a guy I worked with up north who was too tough. He was too tough for water purification tablets. He didn't need them. The guy would take a straw and drink out of moose tracks. <laughs> and it's like uh, naturally he spent half his life you know throwing up anyway <laughs> so this is um this this question of like if you mix grossed up water with clear water the grossed up water doesn't make the clear like the grossed up water doesn't become clear all that happens is you get the clear water is now grossed up well, and so I, I don't like and, until yeah. we can have historians, uh, ethicists, geneticists, um, biologists, cultural anthropologists, until we have an open arena to ask and answer these questions about the superiority and inferiority of various cultures around the world, until that is an honest and open area of scientific exploration then the idea of who should move where and what should, to me, it does, I mean, should you mix this water with that water? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. So I, 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 I don't agree. Can I explain why? Please. The, the idea of, of that sort of study, for us to engage in that sort of study, it just sounds dreadful to me. Um, uh, because, oh God, I mean, just, just even looking at what the scientific community, uh, is doing now and, and how, how, you know, any, anything that you pour m money into can become dogmatic pretty quickly. And the more you invest into something, uh, the harder it is to dispute any observations that that particular group has made. Um, well, no, no, but, but we, we do science, right? Right. So, for instance, let's just say 
let's look at the races. Right? There are more successful races and there are less successful races. Mm, that's really, I don't know. I think that's, that's no, really. Empirically, no, 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 no. Empirically, I'm not saying the why and I'm not saying it's because of race. But there are more successful races and there are less successful races at the moment. In general, overall, tons of exceptions within each race. But I'm talking yeah. in general. Yeah, it's it's just so hard to talk about um, race that way because well no I no no <laughs> no 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 but what I mean is that um, nobody is really a particular race. I mean we've 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 uh, we've what? mixed. Nobody's for, a particular race. Well, we've I mean, mixed, I don't understand what you mean. We've mixed for thousands and thousands of years. Like I'm part this, I'm part that, I'm part this. Um, Wait, are you saying that an uh, Australian outback can give birth to a Swedish kid? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that well, that pygmies can give birth to. Um, a, uh, an Asian kid? No, what I'm saying is that we're too ricks, too mixed, to um, to to uh, to label people as any particular race. No, that's not true. I would just use human. No, 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 human no, no, no. The, 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 you got to deal with the facts here. That's not true at all, right? So there's ways of genetically measuring race that are very clear, and it would have to the be average through, person, it, the uh, average person, like so. What, what they've done these experiments where they they get the genetics. Of, of the races, and the races do differ genetically, mm -hmm. and they uh, they figure out which race. Of course, there's, right? I mean, of course, there's uh, uh, mixed races. I, uh, of course, I understand that, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, with dogs, there are mongrels, right? That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a particular race or another uh, species or subspecies of, of, of dog. So they, they do these, these tests where they test the genetics of the race. And then what they do is they have the average person uh, look at photographs and, and say, what race do you think this is? And it's like 96, 97, 98% of the time, the observations of the people match the genetics of the race mm -hmm. perfectly accurately. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the idea that uh, race is, is like we're all just so interbred uh, is, is not valid. Uh, there are genetic differences between the races, and people are very good at figuring out. I mean, I just looked up this study today because somebody asked me a question. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, but three-month-old babies recognize and prefer their own races. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how much social conditioning they've had in <laughs> three months. I don't know. But uh, the idea that, that we're all one race uh, is not true. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not even close to true. And the idea that we can't um, figure out which race is which uh, is also not true. Yeah, there's some gray areas, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, for the vast majority uh, of cases, uh, that is, uh, uh, it's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is this is just an area where you and I disagree because I, you know, I, no, I, I, no, I, no, no. I've mm -hmm. given you studies and data. You can disagree with the data, but don't pretend it's no. me you're disagreeing. No, no, no. I don't disagree with the data. Um, obviously, okay. we're, di we're different genetically, and a lot of that has to do with um, where our ancestors lived on the planet, right? A lot of it has to do with uh, um, geographic location, uh, weather conditions, climate, uh, those sort of things. I'm correct in saying that, right? I'm sorry. Can you say, say why why? the races would have diverged genetically? No, what I'm saying is what this, this observation that we have about people looking different that we refer to as race is a product of the ancestors of that particular person and where they, where they came from geographically on planet Earth. They didn't come from another planet, in other words. They came from planet right. Earth. I mean, the, um, the, 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 the three major races 
mm-hmm. right? The 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 uh, the whites, blacks, and Asians, for want mm-hmm. of a better delineation, mm-hmm. um, split off genetically. I think about fifty thousand years ago, in general. And of course, the whites went to Northwest Europe, and the Asians went up to Siberia, and the mm-hmm. blacks stayed, uh, of course, in Africa. And these are obviously very big, broad generalizations. Sure, but uh, yeah, they were about fifty thousand years worth of adaptation to specific geographical locales that were enormously different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right, in, in just about every conceivable way. Yep. And uh, my understanding, this is all off the top of my head, so you know th- th- this could be uh, erroneous to some degree. And, but my understanding is that um, uh, races differ uh, about 15% um, of uh, uh, about 15% of the genes that differentiate race, um, uh, separate mm-hmm. uh, various races. And uh, I think for dogs, about 30%, which is why dogs are just so freakily different that sometimes I even think that they're dogs. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was about 50,000 years of evolution that produced about a 15% genetic difference uh, between the races. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so essentially, we all came from the same place, but we, we, we split, we developed different uh, cultural habits, which probably led to different breeding preferences. And we gradually over time, because some had more exposure to sun, some had less, etc. We we physically developed different attributes. Um, But I think I think it's an erroneous approach to to somehow assume that those differences that are merely physical um, are are, are worth measuring in terms of better or worse? Well, no. I mean, in terms of adaptation, there's no such thing as a better or worse race, right? There's uh-huh. no race that's superior to any other race, mm-hmm. right? And I've said this before on the show. Uh, it's like saying that uh, the, the, the brown fur of a brown bear is superior to the white fur of a polar bear. Well, it's not. It, they're just adaptations to their environment, mm-hmm. and there's no superiority or inferiority for... Uh, those things. So, as, I mean, more successful or less successful cultures, I think you can sort of measure in terms of you know, longevity and wealth and infant mortality and, and mm-hmm. st- uh, stability, rule of law, uh, and, and so on, right? Uh, but um, you... Um, uh, but, but for this to be irrelevant... Oh, hang on. Mike has a... Uh, oh, my God, Mike. Facts? You want to do this? One? I know. I <laughs> Wait, Mike, he's breaking up. He's breaking up. Oh, no. <laughs> Seems like you were pretty right about the 15% uh, from memory. Oh, wow. Good for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 1972, Richard Lewontin, sounds like a racist to me, performed an FST statistical analysis using 17 markers, including blood group proteins. He found that the majority of genetic differences between humans... 85.4% were found within a population. 8.3% were found between populations within a race, and 6.3% were found to differentiate races, Caucasian, African, Mongoloid, South Asian, Aboriginals, Amerinds, Oceanians, oh, Aquaman, and Australian Aborigines in his study. Since then, other analyses have found FST values of 6 to 10% between continental human groups, 5 to 15% between different populations on the same continent, and 75 to 85% within populations. Okay, so there are genetic differences, and, uh, um, uh, and, and I don't know whether these genetic differences are relevant to the success or failure of various cultures and races. I don't know. And, and one of the reasons I don't know is 
people who want to try and find out any facts about this are just screamed down as bigots and racists or whatever, right? And I think that's a shame. I think that's a shame because why, why would people be afraid of knowledge? Why would people be afraid of facts, right? We had this guy, Dr. Kevin Beaver on, and we were talking about the standard deviation difference in IQ between whites uh, in America and blacks in America. Standard deviation difference in IQ. That's the difference between an IQ average of 100 for whites and an IQ average of 85 for blacks. And Kevin Beaver was on talking about it. Um, we had uh, uh, Flynn, uh, uh, Professor Flynn uh, on talking about it. And he said right on the show, he said, no, you can't research. You cannot research it. I mean, look what happened with Charles Murray and the late Richard um, Ernstein. Uh, who who put out the bell curve uh, in the 90s, uh, I mean, it screamed down as racist and this and then the other, right? So, I mean, I don't know why. If, if there is, if there are no differences that have to do with intelligence that are biological, let's eliminate that. Let's take it off. Let's explore it. Let's examine it. Let's eliminate it. Of course, that would be the responsible thing to do. That would be the responsible thing to do. And And the idea that somehow the human brain is immune from evolutionary pressures seems to me entirely anti-scientific. You know, like every time I put out these videos that are, are point out some reason to have some doubts about some of the data behind global warming, I feel, oh, Steph's so anti-scientific. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, no, I think skepticism is sort of the point of science, and nobody's, I've never said it's not happening or it's not real or anything like that, but, you know, there's some shaky stuff that's supporting it, and I think it's worth, worth pointing it out. Mm. And, um, and and liberals are often complaining that – I'm not a conservative, but, you know, the conservatives are anti-science and so on. Uh, but, but it comes to studying uh, genetics uh, and, and race or genetics and, and the brain and so on, you can't do it. But why? I mean, let's, let's do it. Let's eliminate it. Because if – look, this is a huge challenge to evolution. If, if the brains of the races are identical, if the brains of the different races are identical – I am going to become religious because that would be such a staggering blow against evolution that the, the most expensive organ that human beings possess, the one that consumes the most resources in our body, that that most expensive organ is immune from evolutionary pressure such that a 50,000-year split and, and they've shown in um, the people who live in Tibet, just within a couple of thousand years, there have been significant adaptations to high-altitude living. Um, Jewish intelligence began to really climb the roof uh, just a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, and so there's genetic changes occurring even within a few thousand years. If wildly divergent environments, all the way from the unbelievable snows and endless winters of Siberia, all the way to the hot tropical jungles of Africa – if the human brain has had no change in 50,000 years with wildly divergent environments, I'm, I'm going to become a priest. I, because that's just like, <laughs> wow, then evolution makes no sense. And look, if, if, if there is no difference, that should be very easy to ascertain. Very mm. easy to ascertain. Just MRI scans of a variety of different races and see if the brain sizes are different. And for people who want to look up those studies, they've all been done, and you can go and look up the information uh, yourself. Um, the, the 50 or 60 significant differences between the races, nobody can talk about. 
yeah. nobody can talk I, about. And and this is, this is tragic. And that's so racist to me. It's incredibly racist to say we can't study the races. Because what you're saying is we can't study the races because we're afraid of what we might find. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, we cannot be afraid of knowledge. That, that is superstitious. That is um, medieval. It's worse than medieval. I mean, there were scholastics in the Middle Ages. We, why would be afraid? we'd be afraid of knowledge? Why would we be afraid of, of studying things that are very, very important uh, in a particular group uh, mm. and, and in a particular group of society that's trying to, to live together? Well, I'll tell you. And I'm curious for you uh, in particular, right, since, since this obviously does make you uncomfortable, why does it make you uncomfortable? Yeah, well, I'll tell you why. I mean, I, 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 don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with studying races, but I think what's wrong is um, for the thesis of your study to measure uh, who's better at this versus uh, you know, IQ points. You mentioned IQ points. So who has more IQ points? Um, I, I don't think that's useful at all. I mean, and, and, and there's, a, I think, and I think a number of reasons, but yeah. uh, one of them I think is, is one of the fundamental flaws that I see in a lot of studies done in general, which is that, you know, if you're going to use, um, a metric ruler to measure something, your result is going to be centimeters. In other words, my point there is that, um, what you measure is really going to depend on the tool that you're using to measure it. And this is—I think this is sort of the fundamental uh, flaw that science has that scientists are really blind to, and they—they they assume that everything that they've measured somehow has some sort of absolute value or meaning. Uh, and this is—I realize this is like more kind of philosophical than scientific. Uh, no, but sorry, what is? I'm, I'm sorry to because I, I, again, I'm not sure what we're talking about again. Um, so let's just talk about the IQ test. Are you saying that the IQ test is unfair? Uh, or is it culturally biased, or is it? I, I think it's it's really easy for something like that to fall into error, um, because um, first of all, the the methodology um, that is used to measure something as ambiguous as IQ. Um, I'm sorry. Could, why is IQ ambiguous? Well, I, IQ is a fabrication. How would you define IQ? Intellectual well, IQ is the number right? you get from taking an IQ test. Exactly. Sure it's, the number, it's the number you get from taking a random IQ test that somebody created. No, no, wait, wait. What, what do you mean? Hang on. What do you mean random IQ test? Well, it's, it's some, somebody created the test, right? A human being yeah. created the test yeah. to, to measure what they believe to be intellectual coefficients. I'm assuming that's what IQ means. Um, well, it's it's designed to measure intelligence, obviously, right? <laughs> well, how can you say that measures intelligence? That seems like a really limited, a really limited understanding of intelligence, a very limited understanding of intelligence. I mean, if take well, take, okay, an IQ, but, take an IQ, hang on, hang on, hang on, uh, hang on. But you'd know the IQ test was not valid if it had no correlation to success in life, right? So, for instance, if if high IQ people didn't get into college and low IQ people did and high IQ people ended up making less money than low IQ people and high IQ people and low IQ if high IQ people had shorter lifespans and made poorer choices in life than low IQ people and all then you'd say well this test is terrible <laughs> I mean there's like <laughs> negative correlations or whatever right maybe you just reverse the test or something 
but but IQ does IQ tests obviously don't measure the whole person. No question of that, right? Uh-huh. But IQ is very predictive of life success, and it's relatively stable. In fact, significantly stable throughout life, mm-hmm. and so it is measuring something that is important. Um, like I shared the other day, um, uh, this uh, chart, and the chart is like IQ and income. And it's crazy how linear it is. The higher your IQ, the higher your income. Mm-hmm. And so IQ is measuring something. It's not just a random grab bag. Can, can I give you my argument as to why, why I think you're wrong? Well, why the data is wrong? Because you keep trying to person, I'm I'm reporting data, and you keep trying to okay. personalize. It I'm to sorry. Me. I'm sorry. Um, let's see. Okay, so let me let me. Uh, I hope you don't mind me. Uh, no, I, I love this chat. I mean, I'm okay. really enjoying myself. So I good, hope you're good. enjoying it. Me too. Me too. Um, so one one thing that that always, <laughs> this is sort of re- not really related, but I'd like to use it as an analogy. Um, people talk about karma. Yeah, you've heard about karma. And if you do good things, good things will happen. In fact, the, the, the new Microsoft CEO got into really big trouble <laughs> telling people that you should just work on having good car- doing good things because good karma will eventually lead to getting a, a raise uh, and not ask your manager for a raise. You should just work on your karma or so something like that. And he got into a lot of trouble. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, anyway, the whole karma thing really upsets me because essentially I, I feel like I can... Are we drifting a little here? I'm trying to figure out why we're talking about karma. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so people say, you know, you, you understand, you know the concept of karma, right? Yeah, that, the idea that you do good things and good things like there's an implicit uh, reciprocity that happens in the universe that yeah. you do good things. And- yeah, and, and so if that were true, wouldn't I be able to tell that person, okay, so the top 0.01% most successful people on the world that own most of the world's wealth, they must be really moral people. They must have really great karma. Right, which is probably not. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the case. I don't know if that's been studied. I don't know if morality has been studied among the wealthy. But it's 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 usually the case that there is um, that that is not the case. And so um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is um, uh, look at no. The but p- if there were no, but but if there was a, a, an MQ morality quotient, right? Mm-hmm. If there was an MQ and it almost perfectly correlated with increased income, then we could say that there's a very strong correlation between MQ and income, between one's morality and one's income. Now, clearly, that's not the case in the world as it stands. (laughs) But intelligence and income are very highly correlated. And they're not specific to socioeconomic status, right? Because you could say, well, you know, the thing is, you see, like, there are high IQ parents and they have high they have children of average IQ but they're so good at getting them contacts and telling them how to negotiate the business world and so on like like um, Bill Gates right when he's negotiating with IBM well his fucking dad is a patent lawyer who's on the phone with him in the next room that's quite helpful right and so there's this idea that you know they're having average IQ kids but uh, but it's not the case because high IQ children from very poor Socioeconomic status environments do vastly better than low IQ children from higher socioeconomic status mm-hmm. environments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the 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 the, 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 the uh, goodwill hunting, right? The genius in the trailer park ends up doing vastly better than the person of average or below average IQ who's born in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think I think that could be possibly because um, we've devised a system that rewards a certain kind of intelligence. I don't know. I mean, that might be a stretch. Um, <laughs> well, the system is called customers in general, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I no, mean, I, would you would you rather have a very intelligent surgeon or a surgeon with an IQ of ninety? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Right. Would you rather have a very intelligent lawyer defending you against a criminal charge, or would you rather have a not intelligent lawyer? I mean, it's not well, just a system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you could. I look mean, you at, wouldn't you wouldn't be listening to this show if I had an IQ of ninety eight, right? <laughs> uh, you probably you probably have a much higher IQ if it were measured correctly. Um, so I guess. But my I guess, question is. So my question is, though, and again, I appreciate you. I know this uncomfortable stuff for some people, and I appreciate no, no, that. No, and I'll like tell it. you why I think it's important outside of this sort of mixing of countries and so on in a sec. Mm-hmm. But you have a, a, a pushback against this, and my question is why. And I'm not saying you, you could be right. Maybe I mean the idea that IQs are culturally biased, which I know you haven't brought up, uh, mm-hmm. is is way incorrect. I mean, mm-hmm. for instance, as you probably know, uh, Asians score higher than whites on IQs that were invented by whites. <laughs> and I don't think they're Rachel Dolezal-type whites who were just pretending to be white but were actually Asian uh, with, with the contacts and blonde wigs or something like that. I mean, like, uh, you know, like Google got in trouble for being not multicultural, not diverse enough and so on, right? But they only did that because they counted Asians as whites because Asians proportionately vastly outstrip whites at Google, right? Because mm-hmm. Asians have, on average, 105 to 106 in, in IQ. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that that's guessed at or, you know, I don't know if it's ever been proven or not, is because they lived in the harshest environment where less intelligent behavior was more savagely punished genetically. Uh, And so as things got colder, the intelligence requirement to survive was higher where there was still agriculture and and, and that possible. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, Asians do better on, quote, white IQ tests than whites Mm -hmm. do. Uh, And there are plenty of IQ tests that require no language. Uh, at all, uh, mere symbols. And, uh, and the other thing, too, is that IQ tests also correlate to reaction times, right? To, to simple, like measuring the basic reaction time of the brain, where it's like push a button when this happens, that kind of stuff, right? IQ is quite strongly correlated with reaction times in the brain. So IQ is measuring some particular kind of brain capacity. We would assume mm-hmm. that the faster the brain to some degree, the, the greater the capacity for intelligence, and that does seem to to uh, work out. Uh, I, IQ also seems to correlate with brain size, not insignificantly either. And again, it's not 100% or anything like that, but they've, they're pretty good at measuring. They used to have way brains after people were dead, right, to cut them out and uh, all that. But uh, now yeah. they can, of course, measure the size of brains with um, uh, uh, MRIs and uh, other scanning devices. And lo and behold, IQ is also correlated to uh, to brain size. Mm-hmm. So IQ is not just some out of the ass of statisticians number. Uh, mm-hmm. It does seem to be measuring a very real capacity that correlates with a variety of other measures, uh, income, educational achievement, marital stability, longevity, uh, brain reaction time, a size uh, of brain, complexity of brain structure. Uh, these all correlate together. It, it is not just... Uh, a, a made-up, culturally obtuse number. I, I agree. I agree. I, I want to make sure that, I, that that you know that I agree with that, and I agree with the, those observations and and the scientific uh, results from those tests and the correlations that are being uh, concluded. Uh, uh, 
what I'm, what I'm saying is that I, IQ, an IQ test, isn't necessarily a complete value uh, of someone's intelligence. But, it is but why a, it, do you keep pushing back on this? This is what I need to understand. Because, of course, I just told you already. Why why you have this emotional pushback? That's what I want to understand. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Maybe I should. Maybe okay, I'm, yeah, so I'm let me answer that question. Talking about this. Yeah, I'll answer but, that question. Because like, I've already said, of course, it's not a complete measure of the person. And now you're saying, well, I agree with all that. But I want to make sure right, I, right, you understand right. it's not a complete why, – why, why is there this pushback? Why, no, no, why no, does because, it bother because you? Because it, it sounded like you understood that I was saying that I didn't agree that IQ was a measure of anything. But I do. I, I agree that it is um, but then you have to say but but it doesn't like why is there the pushback right like if i said um height you know is used to measure someone's height and you say well yes but it's not used to measure <laughs> someone's weight directly that would be like well why, why yeah, let, let me explain why making, so why is let, it making okay. you uncomfortable let me explain why because um you know these things are true that you're saying uh, and you're um the, the problem, and this is going to help me answer the question that you originally asked, which is why I'm uncomfortable with this, um, is that you're associating value. Uh, you're attributing uh, value, uh, as in, you know, valuable, uh, as in a person um, can be seen as being a better contributor to their community and better this, better that, and overall a better uh, human being because... The, the, wait, wait, wait. I, no, no, I know you didn't say these yeah, things. No, wait, when did I say any of that? No, no, no. You're attributing value in, in the statement. No, no. That you're I making. said they make more money. So that makes sense. You the mean economic? Like, e- I, I'm not attributing economic value. I'm passing along to you the information that higher IQ people make more money. Okay, okay. You're right. You're not, you're not stating these things. But the problem, this is, this is going to help me answer the question that you asked, which is that these measurements uh, can lead to people associating value. Uh, with uh, different people from different backgrounds. And so if if this information were to just kind of get thrown out there, let's say somebody conducts a study with all the flaws that we would assume any human-made study could have. Um, and, and sure, it, it, it defines this race as having more IQ than this other race. Um, when you when you look at the the current state of, of at least the United States, has with regards to race and the, the number of people in the country that are aggressively racist, right? We, we know that this exists, that there is an, an aggressive, there is a segment of the society that is aggressively racist. And this is on both sides, you know, or three sides or four sides. I mean, there, there's, there's a small minority of people who are racist um, and they can be aggressive. And so I think the reason you want to tread lightly when you're conducting these studies is number one, my point was these studies aren't complete in my view. They, they can't really measure the full, the full length, the full value and intelligence of somebody. But let's say, let's assume that they, they measured a, a sizable amount of intelligence, uh, accurately. Um, and you do, someone has a percentage more than, say, let's say, let's say it's 0.1% more. This person is 0.1% more than that person over there. And that could have been some sort of rounding error in the study. Let's, it, it, these people that hate and these people that have an aggressive racism, um, toward a particular race will use that. You know, we'll use that to help fuel and justify their actions. And I, so I think this is why. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Mm-hmm. Okay, hang on. <laughs> oh my God. I, I think. What you're saying is great, right? So I'm not in exasperation telling you to hang on. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think you see mm-hmm. the problem with what you're saying. Mm. And I agree with you. This could happen. This could happen. But I don't think that 
The alternative is not a non-racist society. The alternative is an even more racist society. The alternative to facts is an even more racist society. Mm. Do you want to know how? Sure. Okay. Let's say, this is pure speculation, <laughs> let's say that black IQ differentials are largely genetic. It's just a hypothesis. I'd love, to, I'd love to eliminate that possibility. I'd love for it to be studied. I'd love for it to be dismissed. I'd love for it to be completely eliminated. And it pisses me off that people won't just let that happen. Mm -hmm. Because there's lots of people out there. Trust me, I, I do these videos on race. I mean, I see some of the comments. There are lots of people out there who think this is the case beyond the shadow of a doubt. And, and because nobody's allowed to study it, it feeds into those beliefs, right? There are countless people out there who believe that blacks are inferior intellectually, genetically. And because nobody's allowed to study this, we don't have the data to say, you bigots, you're wrong. <laughs> so avoiding the information does not solve the problem. What it does is it says to the racists who believe it's all genetic, well, of course, you're not allowed to study it because everybody knows it's true and they don't want to confirm it. It doesn't mm. solve the problem, right? That's number one. Number two, let's say, and this is the heart, it's a heartbreaking scenario, and I, I'm not saying it's true, but let's say they do the research and they find out, oh my goodness, wow, you know, compared to Asians, you know, the, brain, the brains of black people have a cup-sized difference and like all these problems or whatever, right? And let's say that they find genetic differences or what, whatever, right? Could be testosterone-based. I don't know, right? And let's say that uh, they do find out that there's strengths and weaknesses in all the races, right? I mean, again, it's completely ridiculous and, and absolutely wrong, anti-scientific, and as damn close to immoral as you could say, imagine, to say that any one race is superior to any other race. I think that's absolutely wrong, immoral, and totally unjustified to state. Mm. Because there is no such thing when it comes to adaptation as superior or inferior. I agree. Right? The fact that blacks uh, dominate short-distance running is not an argument for black racial superiority. Right. <laughs> Right. It just doesn't make any sense, right? The fact that there are lots of blacks in the NBA, the fact that there aren't many black Olympic swimmers in no way argues for any kind of inferiority or superiority. I just want to put that out, right? Very, very clear. I agree. Okay. So, but let's say that they look at intellectual capacity and they, they find out that blacks, um, you know, they got some benefits. This is not one of them, right? In terms of the evolutionary split. Well, if that is true, and like everyone, I hope to hell it's not. But if that is true, then that goes a long way towards explaining why blacks are doing badly. Now, and, and again, overall, in general, right? I mean, I've been hugely influenced by black intellectuals and, you know, quality is quality no matter what it's wrapped in, right? But my daughter is going to grow up into a world where she's going to be called part of a racist structure, right? She's going to be accused of having white privilege, and she's going to be called 
part of a racist power structure that oppresses blacks, right? Now, if it turns out to be true, and again, I hope it doesn't, but if it does turn out to be true, that blacks have a deficiency in, in aggregate, right, a deficiency in um, capacity intellectually, then that would explain to a large degree why they're not doing as well. Now, if nobody's, and if that is true, but nobody's allowed to talk about it, what is the only other explanation as to why blacks are doing badly? The only other explanation as to why blacks are doing badly is white racism. You see, you don't solve the problem of racism by not studying the facts. All you do is you shift it and make it worse. Mm. It's like, if there is, and, and again, Charles Murray has got these arguments, he's got a great debate with Professor Flynn online, and I don't pretend to know what the hell the answer is. I'm a podcaster, right? <laughs> but it is important, because white people and white societies get blamed for black deficiencies. And there's potential that that there's the potential evidence which nobody's allowed to study that says this may not be the entire answer. Mm -hmm. Now, if it is not the entire answer, if white racism isn't the entire answer, but there are genetic differences between the races that have an effect on success, if there are genetic differences that aren't understood and explored and explained, then what happens is white people get screamed at for being racist for things that white people have no control over whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right? Not a lot of Asians in the NBA. Is that because of racism? No, it's because Asians in general are short. Doesn't mean you can't have Asian people in the NBA. It just means in aggregate. Right? But if everyone were to scream at the NBA owners for being anti-Asian, what would they say? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I'm not anti-Asian, mm -hmm. but tall helps, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, there, if, the, if brain structures are different between the races, for better or for worse, and, and there are, you know, everything is a cost and a benefit, right? Everything is a cost and a benefit. And my problem is that I don't want myself, my friends, my daughter, I don't want my entire culture and history and race being called racist if the problems are beyond our control. That is racist in and of itself. It is absolutely unfair to scream racism at NBA owners because they don't hire enough Asians. And it is absolutely wrong if there turn out to be genetic differences. It is absolutely wrong to scream racism at white people for facts of reality that are beyond anybody's control. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like you, you, you end up being horribly racist against white people and accusing them of all these terrible things when it may be, I hope it isn't, but it may be the case. Yeah, I mean, you bring that up, it's not white people's fault. <laughs> yeah. You, you bring up something really, really important, which is there is this disparity um, in, in wealth, uh, social economic status, and you can correlate that 
to, to race, right? Um, and so this is this no, is obvious. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. No, you can't correlate that to race. This is what I'm saying. No, no. I mean, you, you can you, correlate you, it to IQ. So an Asian with an IQ of 85 makes about as much money as a white person with an IQ of 85 makes about as much money as a black person with an IQ of 85. Okay, a black okay. person with an IQ, I don't know what Tom Sowell's IQ is. Like it's, I just put a little infinity symbol <laughs> next to the guy because he's just brilliant. And just, I, you ask him any question, he'll come up with an answer that would just blow your mind wide open, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does Tom Sowell, um, for those who don't know, he's a black economist. I think he teaches at Harvard. I mean, the guy's got guy to have an IQ of, I don't know, 150, 160. I don't know. Maybe more. Who knows, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe he knows. I don't know. But Tom Sowell, a, a black man with an IQ of 160, makes about as much money as an Asian man with an IQ of 160, makes about as much money as a white man with an IQ of 160. Right? In, in other words, you, you can't say that the NBA is segregated by race. No. The NBA is segregated by height and other physical characteristics, which we don't really have to bore everyone with, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's not race that is the differentiator when it comes to uh, social success, but it seems mm -hmm. to be. IQ is one of the primary ones. I see. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think it's a good, uh, it's a good problem to study. Um, but, but if you're going to, if you're going to study it, I, IQ seems doesn't seem like a good place to start. Uh, well, I guess I don't know. I guess You're it's I guess, crazy here. I guess. Do you have anything except a butt? <laughs> right? You're like, you're like well, Jennifer Lopez. We're the you're baby. We're the baby. Um, I mean, because you're like, I've, I've made a very strong case. Is it airclad? No. Is it iron, like, ironclad, airtight? No. But it's a strong case as to why IQ is important. Yeah. Because... How do we know that, that, say, blacks are doing worse? Because Asians do better than whites in white countries. Those racist bastards are <laughs> Asiatic overlords about to take over, right? Um, and Asians test very well in spatial intelligence, which is why the Asian engineer is not, right? I mean, so I've, I've made a pretty strong case. And now you're just telling me, I don't think we should study it because, no, right? No. I mean, but if you, you can't just say that. The way that you have a debate is you tell me how I'm wrong. You don't just say that I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're, and I think I think it's it's totally valid to to study IQ in the way that you're describing. But um, earlier on, you were you were explaining that there's value in studying IQ as it pertains to race. It, j just earlier now, you were saying, okay, uh, someone that's from uh, Asia and has an 80 IQ and someone that's uh, from North America, you know, if you, if you take all these different races and they all have the same IQ, then it leads to the same results, then that's, that's great. You're basically studying IQ uh, irrespective of race. And, and that's, I think that's a fine study. Well, wait, 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 hang on. <laughs> what do you, to study IQ irrespective of race, you'd have to only study the IQ within one race, which would be racist. Uh, what I mean is the study isn't trying to... Can't have any blacks. Can't have any Asians. No, no, no. That's only not what I... white people. I want to see blue eyes, and I want to see a complete inability to dance. Then we'll study you, right? I mean, that wouldn't be... No, no, no. That's not that what I meant. That wouldn't be the way you'd want to approach it, right? What I meant is you're studying IQ across the races, but you're not taking uh, 10 people from this race and 10 people from that race, uh, doing an IQ test on the 10 of each group and saying, oh, this one got more points, therefore that race tends to have a better IQ. 
that's that's why the thing that why, hang on but why couldn't you study that well that's the thing i'm i'm objecting to right I'm not objecting to the study of IQ and how it relates to success and wealth and blah, 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 all those things. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of value to that. And I think what would be more valuable, actually, once that study has been done, is to, and you've done some videos about this, which is the degree to which one can impact one's own IQ, whether it's through the upbringing of our children, um, uh, the things we read, the things we study, uh, the activities that we engage in. I think that would be part, for me, that would be the, the part two of that study. And uh, rather than saying, okay, let's take 10 from this race and 10 from that race and see how they fare. No, no, but this, <laughs> these uh -huh. studies are, have, are already done. No, I know. No, no, I, look, you, I don't think you do because you're saying, well, we shouldn't do this. It's been done for over a hundred years, starting, I think it was in 1908. The American Army did IQ tests to figure out not only who could be in the Army, but whether they should be put like in an officer track or general infantry track or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So um, from, from 1908, well, intelligence tests were done long before that, but from I think it was 1908. Um, so there's more than 100 years of IQ data wildly and widely cross-racial, like millions and millions of people of, of various races have had IQ tests. And those IQ tests have then been correlated with success in the military, right? So what they're trying to do is figure out, well, where should we aim to have this person end up, right? And so you don't want to say to somebody who tests IQ 90, we're going to aim to get you to be, you know, major general, right? Because it's not likely to happen, right? At the same time, you don't want to say to somebody who's got an IQ of 120, um, you know, we're going to make you a, a runner uh, at the front or something like that, right? That you, you, you want to use your resources, even in the military, God help them, but you want to use your resources <laughs> as intelligently as possible. And so they have tried to, uh, they, they've done these intelligence tests uh, and they have studied the results, right? So because they don't want to make mistakes, because they don't want to misuse their resources, right? And so they, they do these IQ tests, and then they see where people end up. And then they tweak the IQ tests a little bit, and this has to be done because of rising IQs uh, in general. But uh, they do these IQ tests, and they tweak this data, and they do the IQ tests, and they tweak the data, and so on. And so, and this is just one of literally thousands of IQ studies that have already been done across a variety of cultures and a variety of races. There's probably as much data, if not more data, with regards to IQ and race, IQ and country, IQ and culture, IQ and gender. It's about as much, because it's a pretty easy test to administer, mm -hmm. and it doesn't require a, a rely on self-reporting, which is like the bane, you know, do you love your kids? Yes, say all the parents, and right? Um, and so it, it is probably one of the areas in the social sciences where there is the most data possible. And uh, so the idea that we should or shouldn't do these tests, I think, is kind of irrelevant because, you know, you, you're standing in front of a city saying, well, I'm not sure whether we should build the city, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and what you had attributed, um, when you attributed value to, to these studies, um, you, you had suggested that it would, it would help somehow the debate on race because white people wouldn't just be called uh, racist or something like that. Is, that. is that the only outcome that you see coming out of a, this, this information? What, what is, I guess I'm trying to figure out what is the value in, in ascertaining this information? Because I'm, I'm trying to flip the tables around and just pretend, let's say, that everything was reversed in the United States. 
uh, that uh, that the, it was the white Caucasian population that was uh, in poverty and in in in, in social conditions uh, similar to what the African American population is going through right now, and those who who are dominant would be the African American population, and they conducted a study that said that yeah, sure enough, my Caucasian IQ is just not that high, and that's why I'm stuck, you know, in in these conditions. Uh, how does how do first of all how does that help me? Because ultimately, what we're trying to solve is to um, uh, make sure that everybody is well. I don't know. That's a, I don't know what, what we're trying to solve. I guess with this, well, what, we're, what we're trying to solve is to make sure we have a problem that can be solved. What is the problem? What is, what is the the problem in your view? Lack underachievement. And Asian, I mean, because if, because if if all, like if it's all white racism, culture, um, uh, well, of course you can't call it white racism because that doesn't explain why certain black populations do quite well. And it also doesn't explain why Asians do better than whites in supposedly white countries, right? So it's not yeah. just saying white racism is, dare I say it, a whitewash, right? Because yeah, yeah. Um, Whites, you know, that we're really bad racists towards Orientals. Like we just, we seem to have gotten this racism thing figured out with blacks, but just boy, we're just really terrible at being racist with with uh, with Asians. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Just, just wretched, right? But yeah. we need to know because if there are genetic components to it, maybe there are genetic therapies for it. Maybe there are things that can be done. Um, maybe there are, uh, you know, how people get like tests before they're born to look for genetic uh, problems and so on. So maybe, I don't know, I'm purely theorizing, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's something that can be done to, to improve it. Maybe there's some kind of intervention that can do some kind of gene therapy. I don't know what. Maybe yeah. there's something epigenetically that can be done yeah, yeah. To, to work on the problem. But if everyone is simply screaming white racism, if the problem turns out to have a somewhat significant genetic component and I don't know what the answer is, but the evidence does not preclude that, that I've read. And again, what do I know? I'm no expert, right? Right, right. But there's very smart people who say we can't rule it out. Again, I know that's an argument from authority, but, but because nobody's allowed to study it, it's really annoying because we can't seem to get any, any answers. Yeah. So if there are genetic components to black underachievement, let's figure that out so that we can figure out the best things to do. I mean, and I've, the suggestions that I've put out, I've, I've always said from the very beginning, let's let's work as if there are no genetic components to it. Mm-hmm. But screaming white racism is not going to prevent black kids from getting hit a lot more than white kids. I agree. It's not going – screaming white racism is not going to magically make black families intact the way that they were in the 1950s relative to now. You're right. It does the opposite, in fact. Right, it does the opposite, right? Yeah. So and, – and screaming white racism – makes people very angry at whites. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of places in America, it's pretty dangerous to be walking about while white. Right, right, right. Because because there's a lots of people screaming that white people are just evil, sadistic oppressors. And, I, I you know, they're, they're telling... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the blacks, that, that we, we, white people, like we just, we wake up in the morning... And before we piss and brush our teeth, we're just figuring out how we can keep black people down. That's that's our fucking mission in life. That's what we wake up. We don't have dentist dentist appointments. We don't have to pay our taxes. We just 
got this secret cabal handshake of keeping down one particular section of the population. And if you say to a particular section of the population, those evil bastards are oppressing you, and you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well, you get some pretty fucking ugly blowback. Totally agree. As we saw recently, right? And, and the pro furthermore, the problem with uh, victimhood in general is you, you get this story put in your head that you're, you can't do anything about your circumstances. And essentially, you dispower uh, the person from the ability to make a choice. Um, and which, Especially which is, if white racism isn't the problem, the, or at least not a significant problem, then, then you end up saying you've got to go deal with this imaginary problem rather than work on improving your parenting, work on staying together, as, right, and all that. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I like what you said a, a, a few sentences earlier about it's, it's better to start from the premise that let's assume it's not uh, uh, genetic and that we're on other things that would, that would help um, solve these problems. But, 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 but still study it. Because yeah. nobody can confirm that it's not. It would be ridiculous to say that it's not. Some people say that it is, and there's also varying degrees. Nobody's saying it's 100%. I don't yeah. know anyone who's absolutely confirms that it's 0% genetic. Yeah. We shouldn't um, be afraid uh, of information. it's some combination, right? And, and, and we should work on the things, you know, God grant me the wisdom, right? The, the, God grant me the, the, the courage to change the things I can, the serenity to accept the things I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's yeah. not a bad prayer. Yeah, yeah. And um, we just, the fact that nobody's allowed to study it without being screamed at racist is, uh, it, it means that racism has become a kind of religion <laughs> that is terrified of the truth. It's true. It's right? True. That the race industry has become a cult that is radically hostile towards any encroachments of science. It's not that ridiculously complicated to do. You do. You, you measure brain size. You measure reaction times. Uh, you measure IQ. Uh, you correlate with socioeconomic status. Uh, you and you look for. You know, we got the genome project going along. You also look for things like testosterone. Are there testosterone production differences between the races? Well, apparently there are. Is that does that have a factor in impulsivity and so on? Uh, you look at, uh, and that's just on the genetic side. Uh, are there any other biological factors that may have something to do? with uh, success or lack of success, economically speaking, within particular environments. And again, white people suck at being Africans. <laughs> I mean, before modern medicine, right? I mean, you know, a white, white person walks into uh, an African jungle and, you know, like 4,000 different viruses, bugs, and, and animals are like, yo, tasty pale meat for, for breakfast, right? Um, so... It's not a matter of, of superior or inferior or anything like that, but this stuff would be that, and, and you would look for any genetic markers that may have anything to do with intelligence. And once you've got the IQ differential, you look for genetic markers in Asians, you look for genetic markers in whites, you look for genetic markers in blacks and other uh, groups, and you look for various prevalences. Now, most of this work has already been done and is regularly discussed in the professional literature, right, in the, in the magazines or, or the newsletters or the journals. Sorry, the journals is what I'm thinking of. It's not like you get them on your, your iPad. But the journals uh, are, are all talking about this stuff between and among the academics. And nobody 
nobody should be afraid of a rational examination of these issues. Because if we are foundationally focusing on a red herring, we are going to fail. We are going to fail as a society. Yeah. And that is, uh, you know, how can we say that it doesn't matter the degree to which various racial differences may be genetic? Of course it matters because we make massive, massive social, legal, economic, and political decisions based on the premise that it's all white racism. Well, excuse me if I find that just a little bit fucking offensive. That, that my entire culture and history is damned as racist. And I'm not supposed to say, whoa, can we at least study some facts here? No! <laughs> because facts could be racist as well. It's like, that's not, you're not playing fair, right? That's not how knowledge and progress works, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and just, just to, be, to be clear, I didn't say that studying it would be racist. It's just my concern is how racists could use the study. But I agree. I, but we racists be a, are you, no, no, no. Racists are using the lack of studies. Racists on blacks are using the lack of studies to say it's all white racism. And white racists are using the lack of studies to say, well, you see, they're not studying it because they know it's true and nobody wants to say it. Right, right. It, it, you, pretending that it's not there doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. This yeah. giant thing, growth on my back, I'll, I'll just wear a shirt <laughs> and pretend it. Like, how well is that going to work? Yeah. I, I also thought of there, there might be another concern um, to, the, to the resistance to, to these studies. I mean, I don't, I don't uh, know that there isn't. The only reason I know of there being a resistance to the studies is because you brought it up. So I don't know if... if um, how to what degree people are resistant to these studies, but if in fact there is, um, it, it could also be uh, because of people's. I don't know. There was this. Uh, what was the movie where uh, where everybody was tested genetically ahead of time from birth, and that sort of determined, you know, where you were going to be placed in society. Um, and, oh, uh, there Gattaca, was, wasn't it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The two brothers. Yeah, but we already have a sorting mechanism called the free market. It does oh. it without any government intervention, right? Yeah. Well, you've pointed out the free market is in a lot of trouble uh, with with a lot of you know how how the government is controlling uh, quotas for this, quotas for that, laws for this, laws for that, and uh, even even the monetary system isn't really. Uh, uh, but but partly of, that's to do. But, but partly that's to do with race issues, right? Like so, a a huge factor in the American housing crash, which triggered massive, massive trillions of dollars destruction of wealth around the world, and as we mentioned earlier, the destruction of forty percent of America's wealth. A lot of that had to do with racial issues. So there was a study that came out that said that um, blacks were discriminated against by banks in housing loans. And it turned out that the study was completely wrong. Completely wrong. And even the study's authors admitted that later on when people said, well, you didn't control for credit history, uh, you didn't control for job stability, you didn't control for level of education and all that. And once these things were controlled for, actually, um, the banks were slightly pro-black in their lending practices. Another indication that banks are not racist is that black banks, black-owned, black-run banks, lend to blacks at a lower rate than white-owned <laughs> banks do. Mm -hmm. um, but, but so what happened was there was this massive hysteria 
and, and paranoia because, aha, you see, we found the ever-elusive white whale of institutional white racism was found. It's in the banking industry. The banks are discriminating against blacks. So what did the government do? The government said to the banks, you have to lend to minorities. You have to lend to minorities. You have to throw out your standards. Now, this, of course, indicates that even the government knew it wasn't racism because in the moment you say you've got to throw out your standards, you're saying it's the standards can't be racist if they're universally applied. So they say you have to lower your standards and you have to accept no money down and you have to accept no income and you have to accept welfare uh, as, part of the, as part of the income. You have to – like all of these things. You have to change your standards to get minorities into houses, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean what happens when standards developed over decades designed to protect the capital of banks from defaulting? What happens is you get massive – extra building of houses because lo and behold, you've just lowered your standards for minorities. And, you know, I'm sure non-minorities, whites benefited as well and maybe some Asians as well. But in general, it was targeted towards getting minorities into houses. And um, first of all, you get a massive explosion in the number of houses being built because, look, the banks have lowered their standards and there's now tons of, uh, of people buying houses who weren't buying houses before. So let's build the living shit out of houses. Mm -hmm. And then the banks have to find a way to, spread this risk out because a lot of them knew what the hell was going to happen, but they were being forced by the government to to do these lending practices, all to solve an imaginary problem called institutionalized white banking racism, which didn't even exist, right? And, and because the moment somebody says there's a disparity between blacks and whites, the answer is always white racism. Always, always, always. That is so fucking racist, I can't even tell you how offensive that is because nobody ever asks white people what white people know. What do they matter, right? Because, <laughs> you know, they're oppressors, so you don't ask them, right? But um, Well, the uh, government so never the- wants to take any responsibility for anything. And so the easiest thing for them to do is to uh, create uh, tensions and, and rival and stoke rivalries that, that are there so that they become even even louder. And have people fight amongst themselves rather than turn to the government and say, "Hey, you've, you've, you're doing some bad stuff." Um, the government- well, no, it's no, it's not. I mean, I think there's that as well. But uh, um, I mean, you you know that that white people don't have any power left in in, in society or in the culture because white people could push. You know, if there really was this this massive oppressive white institution uh, or institutions, then when people said, "Hey, blacks are being discriminated." against i mean then the the data would have come back or people would have examined the data and said no they just you know they have less stable jobs they have lower incomes they have uh fewer savings they you know whatever right uh and, and then they'd say well so no it's not racism it's you know whatever right but of course nobody ever wants to bring facts to bear on race issues um if they're not hysterically anti-white because uh, everyone gets you know, racism right racism Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, this this is the race war, and, and the race war is against uh, whites, and um, it is horrendous. Uh, it, you know, I mean, people don't generally know if they're not on the receiving end of it, but I mean, you see this kind of stuff all over the place. It's just white racism, white racism everywhere, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, of course, the banks, because they had all of these subprime loans out there that the government was forcing them to make to minorities, well, the the banks had to try and get rid of these toxic mortgages that they knew were going to blow up because they developed these standards over decades or 
hundreds of years and they were just being forced to violate these standards and lower them. So they knew this ship was all going to blow up. So what they do is they bundle them into other financial securities and start selling them around the world. And they pressure people to give them higher ratings uh, than they other would have, like Moody's and, and other people. Uh, and uh, they just they get all of the shit out of the banks as much as possible and into the portfolios of other people. And um, and you can say, oh, well, this is all unethical and so on. Yeah, of course it is. But, I mean, they were forced to take on self-destructive lending practices. And so they just, like everyone, are struggling to survive in a coercive environment. And so, and so of course, you get uh, an eventual crash in the housing market because people can't pay the loans which they never should have had in the first place. And then this ripples all the way through Wall Street. It ripples all the way through Main Street. 10% of the U.S. housing stock ends up completely empty. And it ripples all throughout the world as all of these toxic mortgages bundled into other uh, uh, financial instruments all unravel. Uh, and you get this massive recession that drags on and on, which is unbelievably destructive in particular for black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. how wretched uh, 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 this imaginary racism has now produced real, tangible harm to everyone, and in particular to black people. Mm-hmm. So how the fuck has this helped black people at all? They got into these homes, they blew up their credit rating, they got kicked out of their homes, there was a massive recession which generally hits the, the, the poorer and less educated more, and those who are marginally uh, employable, say if they have criminal histories and so on. So blacks have been completely screwed. Everyone else gets screwed as well. But in particular, blacks have been completely screwed because everyone screamed white racism rather than looking at the data. So it does matter what the facts are about race because we are making enormous decisions based on assumptions of white racism. And even if it turns out, let me tell you this as well, even if it does turn out, as we all hope it will, that it's 100% environmental. Well, this is Charles Murray's point, right? So Charles Murray says, well, even if we assume it's 100% environmental, nobody knows what else we can do. I mean, we've got the welfare state, we've got subsidized housing, we've got food stamps, we've got social security uh, benefits, we've got government schools or with cross-funding from richer neighborhoods. We have massive transfers from uh, more successful to less successful Americans, which has some racial elements to it. We've had the giant Head Start program, uh, which was billions and billions of dollars to produce barely a nudge, a short-term nudge in in a student achievement among minorities. Like, what the fuck else can we do, even if it's 100% environmental? Well, my argument is, okay, let's just cast aside all of this white racist shit and let's focus on how blacks can raise their families peacefully and and voluntarily without aggression and so on. And let's see how far that can take us. I think that would be fantastic. More breastfeeding from black moms would be great to help raise IQ. Less spanking or no spanking would be great to raise uh, IQ. And let's let's see. You know, we'll find out. At the same time, we do need to be exploring the genetics. And the reason we need to be exploring the genetics is because if there are genetic components, then there's going to be a ceiling. And then I don't want people screaming white racism at that point. We need to <laughs> figure out if, like, let's say we can, like, so average uh, IQ for, for African American blacks, 85. Let's say we can get it up to 94. Fantastic. Thrilling. Uh, and, 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 but then I don't, let's say, and let's say there's six points that's genetic. Let's say there's four points that I don't know, right? I don't want everyone to say, Okay, we got it to 92 or 94 or whatever it is, but the remaining stuff is all evil white racism. No, 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 no. 
we need to find out the facts. Now, if there's zero genetic components, then I'm going to become a communist. Because <laughs> if there are zero genetic components, then it doesn't make any sense to me why, for instance, pure blacks, like straight from, from Africa, have IQs even lower than American blacks. So, and and half blacks, half whites have IQs between, which, you know, even if they're raised in black families, there have been families who've raised um, uh, kids who thought they thought they were the other race. And, and, and there's still significant factors that come out there. So, if if there is if it's all environmental, then it means that culture is stronger than genetics. It means that um, it's like how women complain that they're they're underpaid, right? So uh, if there is no IQ difference, sorry, I'm not being very clear. If there's no IQ difference, if the IQ 85 and IQ 100 is meaningless, if there's no IQ difference, then it means that blacks are poor because whites don't want cheap labor. That's just as good as white labor that's more expensive. But that just goes against all economics completely and totally, right? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. But even if we say it's all environmental, we still at the moment have a tested average IQ of blacks, a standard deviation below that of whites. That has an effect, even if it's all environmental and we can fix it over the next 30 years. What The way, the way that people are, are, are now is this AQ85 gap. So it doesn't. So that doesn't mean that that all of the economic effects are simply due to white racism, because there is still this deficiency. And what I mean by that is, let's say Asians just don't eat enough carrots, and if they eat enough carrots, they'll be as tall as as blacks, right? So so we start feeding Asians carrots like crazy, and they end up in in a generation they're going to be as tall as blacks. That doesn't mean that right now the composition of the MBA is going to change because in 20 years or 30 years, Asians are going to be... Now, in 20 or 30 years, yes, the composition of the MBA will change over time. But right now, the composition of the MBA is still going to be Asian deficient because of height or lack of height, right? And so even if we can fix this problem going forward, it still doesn't mean that we should expect economic equality now because there is still this IQ gap. And... My concern is, and I'm sorry for such a long thing, I'll shut up after this, but my concern is that the degree to which we've got this magical answer for everything called white racism is the degree to which, as you pointed out, Paul, is the degree to which blacks are disempowered from finding ways to solve the problem. Because just, you know, we've got God for physics, we've got government for social organization, and we have white racism for any kind of deficiency in communities. And I really hate these magical answers, and I think this let's avoid the facts because the facts can be misused oh man i mean of course facts can be misused of course facts can be misused but you know what can be misused even more the lack yes. of facts <laughs> yes 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 agree yeah i totally agree yeah we shouldn't be afraid of the facts it's it's heartbreaking stuff to look at. I mean, I, I sure I sure as hell wish. I mean, I I'd feel way better if it was white racism. I would, I really really would. If 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 it was just like a hundred percent guaranteed it was white racism, that would be great. 
it because then we've got a solvable problem because you know whites are very guilty people. <laughs> I don't know if it's all that Catholicism or 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 maybe Protestantism or whatever, but whites are very very guilty <laughs> as a whole, right? Very self-flagellating, right? I mean, and so if it is white racism, then the problem should be almost solved because whites have been self-flagellating about racism for about 50 years. I mean, not that they weren't before, but whites as a whole have been beating themselves fucking senseless about being racist for over 50 years now. So the problem should be almost solved because when... Pretty much the guiltiest people on the planet self self-flagellating for two generations. Well, the problem, it should be close to being solved. But I don't really think that it is, which means I don't think that 51 years of self-flagellating white self-hatred for imaginary racism everywhere, I don't think 51 years is going to do anything but make things worse. Yeah, I mean, my observation is that racism um, trickles down. It, it it starts from the top and sort of trickles down, unlike money, which does not trickle down, as you've pointed out in some of your uh, videos. And so I I, I would, if, if there was a... Wait, wait, I'm sorry, if you're moving on, I don't know what it means when you say racism trickles down. I think it's institutional. It, it begins at a, in places of authority. Uh, this could be someone like a priest. This could be someone like a police officer. This could be someone like a president or a ruler of a nation. That that racism um, essentially begins from the top, uh, and and it gets sort of infused in in the culture that way. Because when we're born, when we're born, we're not uh, you know babies aren't racist, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, uh, they are. Oh, no, I just uh, I, I, I just mentioned saying. that there's a, a three month a study in three uh, three months that babies show significant preferences for their own race. Well, look, that's, I mean that's survival. And, that's yeah, right. I no, but that's that. that's um. Uh, I mean, you're you're a, a well educated guy, and again, I, I really do appreciate the conversation. And again, I I don't pretend to have any answers in this area, but I I'm a big one for let's get more facts. Um, but if uh, you're not a dad, right? I am. You are okay. So I am um, a work at home dad, so I can relate to to you in that sense as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, <laughs> so let me be a t- complete son of a bitch and ask you a question. <laughs> um, a son or daughter, both? Uh, son and daughter. Son and daughter. Okay. So let's say uh, which one's younger? Uh, son is youngest. Okay. Um, I- insert lifeboat disaster scenario here. You can save your son, or you can save the son of a stranger. Who you? Only one. Who are you going to save? <laughs> right. Uh, oh, probably my own son. Yeah. Well, I would hope it would be your own son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bad dad if you don't, right? Mm-hmm. And and for the other person, like I, I mean, if this god awful scenario, I hate to even contemplate it, but if this god awful scenario were to happen, and 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 some other dad were to save his son rather than my daughter, I'd say. I can understand that because I would do the same thing in your position, right? Right. Right. So evolution works because we care about genetic proximity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a natural discrimination that's sort of hardwired in us. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and it, it, it goes to um, – it starts with family. It goes to extended family. And at the outer Im- images uh, – sorry, the outer edges, it goes to race. And now, it's not only race. That's a factor, right? I mean, if 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 there's a lifeboat going down, 
I can only save Charles Manson or Tom Sowell, well, that magnificent black bastard is going to get a big hug from me, and I'm going to give a boot to the face of Charles Manson, right? Save the black guy. It's not only race that counts, right? Sure. Um, and, you know, I made this argument years and years and years ago when people said, uh, oh, you know, blacks are afraid of whites. It's like, nope. <laughs> no, no, because it, it's social markers way outside of race, right? So, you know, you, you're, um, you're, you're, you're standing at a bus stop in the middle of the night, and, uh, you know, there's a white, you're white, and there's a white guy come from one direction, a black guy come from the other direction, and the white guy is some glue-sifting crackhead or whatever slouching along with his mohawk, and the, the black guy is in a suit and tie and reading a computer magazine. I, I know who I'm happier to have at the bus stop with me, right? It's nothing to do with race fundamentally. But genetic proximity, in-group preferences, tribal preferences, um, that's how evolution works. And if, if we cared for all offspring equally, we'd never have evolved to even have the word race or science or anything like that, right? So genetic preferences work. We have to be honest about that. And, and I, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just, it's natural. We are a tribal uh, species and part of the tribes, the way they work is race. Now, I, I don't ever really sit there and think, aha, I must find ways to advance the white core. I don't sort of, that's not how my brain works. I'm sort of trying to advance the cause of, of reason to, to, to everybody. But um, to say that we don't have a nature that has a preference for genetic proximity is, I think, to be anti-science, to be anti-evolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't mean that's the only standard. I'm not even saying it's a good standard. But it is something we do have to acknowledge, right? I mean, you're going to save your own kid over a stranger's kid because of genetic proximity. Sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's definitely a, a component there that is uh, hardwired in terms of, of evolution. Um, and, and, and blacks do it too. I mean, it wasn't sure like all the black, like the 98% of black people who voted for Barack Obama did not do it after a careful um, after a careful examination of his policies and those of Mitt Romney, right? They're like, I'm voting for the brother. Even if he's only a half-brother, I'm voting for the brother, right? <laughs> I mean, and I don't think that, that the media went, Jesus, what a bunch of racists. Although you could really make that case, right? I mean, if, if, if there was a, a minority of white people in a country and 98% of them voted for the only white candidate, what would everyone say? <laughs> They're racist. They're only voting for this guy because he's white. But black people do it all the time. Not all blacks, but and and I don't. I, people don't go insane. I mean, people only go insane when white people do it, right? But of course, right? Because because apparently we have all of this uh, um, <laughs> privilege, right? But um, yeah, I mean, black you know black politicians get in power. What do they do? They openly promote black causes. They openly promote blacks. They openly try and hire blacks. And I don't. I mean, is that racist? I guess you could make the case that it is. But I mean. I don't see how that is uh, something that we can, can scream about and say we must completely eradicate that from the black population to have any pro-black preferences or, you know, boy, that, that, that uh, um, uh, Japanese association uh, in, in college, is, is, it seems to be advancing Japanese <laughs> values. It's like, well, yeah, because, you know, they're, they're Japanese, <laughs> of course. They're like, 
the feminist group really seems to be advancing women's causes. Like the women's group really – okay, I get it, right? I mean there's a genetic proximity, female to female, male to male, uh, race to race, uh, family to family. There's genetic proximity and we are hardwired to prefer that. I mean we, we can pretend that only whites should not have that and everyone else should, but I don't see how that is not being racist against whites. Yeah. I think the whole conversation on race is very, um, this goes, I don't, we kind of broke up when I mentioned this, but I started uh, watching your shows maybe a few months ago and it was, it was like hitting an oasis. I, I was, I was getting to this point where I felt like I must be going crazy because <laughs> the kinds of conversations that people are having, the, the, the debates that are taking place, uh, on on the radio and media and the arguments that are being presented and the rationale that is being used to justify these conclusions was was making me think that either I was going crazy or people's brains or the body snatchers have come in already and they're taking over these bodies and like turning people into like these uh, these idiots that I, I I just couldn't comprehend so when I came across your your uh, your video blog I was like oh my gosh there's there's someone out there who thinks and someone out there who arrives to reasonable conclusions. And <laughs> I really, uh, I really appreciate what you and Michael and, and everybody else there at Freedom Wayne Radio does. And so after I was like a th three videos into it and I just had to become a subscriber because not only was it what that I feel a sort of confirmation in that I wasn't going crazy, but, uh, I, I was getting educated. It was like a going, to, felt like I was getting a, a an education in, in history and philosophy and economics and it was it's really valuable to me so I really appreciate everything that you guys are doing so thank you Stefan for well, everything thank you, that you uh, do. how was this I mean I know that we traversed some challenging terrain but how, how was the conversation um, uh, for oh, you this was this was great yeah I think the the conclusion is that it's complex. I mean, we kind of went away from the visa question and caught into race, um, which wasn't my intention, but I, I think uh, a lot of good good things came out of it. So, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And do you want to make a little pitch for peaceful parenting before you feminist? Oh, absolutely. Well, as a parent of two, um, I, you know, I, I, I remember myself as a kid and uh, and I can see myself in my kids, obviously. And I can, I can see what a difference, what a difference it's made to bring up my kids a certain way, uh, for the way that, that I've done, which is peacefully, uh, using, uh, words, um, especially early on. And I never, I never talked down to my kids, uh, from when they were little. In other words, I never used, I never simplified, uh, my words. I would always use the words that were best suited to make an argument. And then they would ask questions like, what does that mean? And I could explain it. And, and right now I have a, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. My eight-year-old reads faster than me. Um, she, she, <laughs> <laughs> um, my yeah. four-year-old, my four, uh, four-year-old is getting, five-year-old is getting close to, to being a faster reader than me. I mean, I'm already seeing them sort of surpass me, uh, in areas that, uh, you know, I'm not even there now, uh, let alone when I was their age. And so I've, I've had this direct, uh, experience with the impact that the way you up, bring your children has on the, the results and who they become as people and their abilities. So oh, everything that you say about peaceful parenting is absolutely, absolutely important because as soon as you, as soon as you resort to violence, you step away from words, you step away from rationality, you step away from arguments, you step away from explanations and, uh, and, and, and that ends up dumbing down their, their ability. So 
um, and of course all the other side effects that you've you've so eloquently um, explained. So yeah, absolutely, peaceful parenting all the way, all the way, baby. And uh, I I appreciate that. Uh, I I'm I'm thrilled. And look, I really want to thank you for subscribing. Uh, that oh, is uh, very very kind. I, I you know I hope that you know this is a place where people feel they can come and talk about difficult stuff. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a whole planet out there of people who are willing to avoid difficult topics. Oh, my God, do you ever, right? <laughs> and um, uh, I appreciate that we can have challenging conversations here. Uh, I hope people understand that when I talk about race, as I talk about everything, it is with the goal of creating a more peaceful society. Uh, and it is with the goal of um, really trying to get as many facts to bear and as much evidence and as much rationality to bear on a topic as possible. And uh, I appreciate you having having the conversation. Uh, I was not exactly saying, ah, I want to talk about race tonight. I hope somebody mentions <laughs> the word culture. Right? It's just how it went, and, and I'm glad that it did. And I, you know, certainly, Paul, welcome to call back anytime. It was a real, real pleasure to have the conversation. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for taking me on. I'll, I'll definitely keep sending you questions. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, up next is James. James wrote in and said, I plan on entering the dating world in the near future, but I'm afraid that I don't represent value to anybody. Do I need to alter myself to have value or do I need to wait to find someone or or do I wait for someone to find value in me? Excuse me. Yeah, you don't enter the dating world. You you aim to conquer a mountain of female loins. I think that's... (laughs) That's the approach that you probably want to take. <laughs> Brazilian women respond to confidence. I watched Rio the other day. Anyway, but uh, I had to bust this thing open like a soda can, like some kind of crazy love hawk. Ah! <laughs> I just love that bit. Anyway, um, so James, entering the dating world, tell me. Tell you about uh, that. I have that. yet to. You can hear me okay. Microphone's yep. good? Good, good, good. I have yet to enter said world and I'm not going to do it just yet this is all kind of really preliminary stuff I want to figure out what I'm doing first Mm-mm-mm. I think I'm going to have to do this online unfortunately I kind of don't want to but um, is uh, it a particular fetish that is extremely rare in which case <laughs> could you share the website with me as well as part of a research experiment no just kidding Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, slim pickings where you are um, yeah, I live in the southwest of the UK, which is a pretty, we're generally viewed as being quite backwards and um, like 30 years behind everybody else. Uh, nothing in the way of big business out here. You've got to go miles and miles to get to the nearest major city, sod all culture of any description, which is odd because we had a big street festival today, which was actually quite nice. Um, anyway... So you've got to do it online, and you're trying to figure out what you have to offer. Is that right? Yes. Um, well, my own history, I think we're going to have to delve into this one really deeply. Sure. It's going to be one of those calls. I have never represented value to anybody. That's not true at all. That's completely inaccurate. I've never represented value to myself. You've never represented value to yourself. I'm sorry to interrupt you just as you're starting. <laughs> I'd like to pretend I know what that means, but <laughs> I'm not sure I can. <laughs> All right, give me a couple of minutes. Let me um, kind of get this one together and figure it out. No, I mean, I look, you're alive, right? So you bathe uh-huh. yourself, you wash yourself, you you feed yourself, you get out for walks. Uh, come on, legs, walkies, right? And you that. go to the doctor and the <laughs> dentist. So you certainly have provided value to yourself in that you're mm. alive, right? I do, but, well, I'm in 
well, one of my last therapists said I'm in in a, in a period of flux, which is <laughs> very accurate and very exciting for me. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, and let's give it in really, really short terms. You're in a, you're I in have, a, you're in a state of flux. That's like me going to the doctor and them saying, your blood is circulating. Thanks, doc. <laughs> I know I'm breathing. Anyway. Okay. I have had what I would describe as a really, really shitty life. I said to one of my other therapists recently, I would never want to relive a single day of my life until now. And I, I stand by that one. I'm okay with that. Um, but this last year, probably this last 12 months, I have been on a pretty massive mission of fixing shit. And it's going spectacularly well, uh, as well as I could have expected. Much better than probably anybody could have expected from me, actually. But uh, I know exactly what I want to do. I'm one by one. I'm doing it. So more on that later. Right. And um, I know you've got an ACE of... uh of uh, a three, no family, love, or support, neglect, not enough food, dirty cloths, clothes, no protection or medical treatment, parents divorced. Um, I kind of now, expected it would be higher, actually, but no, apparently not. Right. It's because I come um, from a different family background than what you'd normally get from your usual call-in, so um, I'll we'll right. find out more about that soon. Okay, um, and I, I'm not trying to, ah, your AC is not high enough to be called <laughs> tragic, right? I, I don't mean that at all, right? Uh, so you only have three out of nine illnesses. It doesn't mean that it wasn't painful. Um, but uh, when you say you've had a shitty life, compared to what? Compared to people who didn't. <laughs> okay, compared to who? Who do you? Who would you compare yourself to and say? Um, I don't have an individual example for that. I guess I'm collectivizing against people, which you know, obviously that kind of falls flat straight away because you need an individual example. But... Um, I did at one point say that I'd never been happy, which is not exactly true. I've never been satisfied well, with my life, is what that means. And um, where do you think you got that, that dissatisfaction from? Good question. Um, I was fine, really, as a small child. I don't really have any kind of regrets uh, about that period of my life. Uh, certainly, the, problem, the problems began before my parents split, um, but I didn't really pay any attention to that. I didn't notice it uh, until things started to unravel very, very quickly. Um, should we go through like my family history, um, just kind of in a in a in a in a long sequence? I'd like to I'd like to go through your family history as it relates to the question as a, uh, that you have about about value. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's. Um, uh, sorry to uh, because l- 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 do you mind if I ask questions? And I, it's not that I don't care about your history. I just I don't want to cast too wide a net. I want to make sure that we get to to the core issue. And if we cast too wide a net, we're going to get a lot of ocean and not a lot of fish. So. Um, let, let me back off for a sec before we go into the family history and say you don't know what value you might provide in a dating mm-hmm. environment or to a woman. Are we, are we talking about a woman? I don't want to yeah, we are. assume, right? Okay. So what's, what is dating for? What is it? What is your goal with dating? Well, in the most basic, or the most basic description of dating I've ever heard, and it probably came from you, uh, is that it's a series of interviews leading to sex. And that is on the one hand, kind of interesting, but at the same time, way too reductionist and simplistic. I don't like that representation of it. Well, no, but do you want sex? So do you want family? I mean, what's your... No, I don't want family. That's probably not a good idea. Um, for a number Why is of... that not a good idea? 
Um, number one is I'd be afraid of passing on my own issues to my children. Uh, as self-aware of it as I would be, uh, I don't know if I could prevent it from happening, which kind of makes it worse. Wait, and, so you, you've got no problem putting, putting your issues onto your dating partner? Um, no, I'd like to avoid that. I'd like to be honest about it, but I'd also like to avoid that. No, what I mean is if I were to have children, I would be afa- afraid of kind of infecting them or poisoning them in, uh, in some way. Um, no, but um, what I'm saying is that would that not also happen to your dating partner? Probably would, actually, yeah. Okay, so that's important because, because my question is if you, if you have enough self-knowledge to not poison up your, your dating partner, that would give you more security about not poisoning up your kids, right? Yeah, actually it would. Good point. And also, you, if you have a competent dating partner, she'll watch your back. If you were to have children with her, right, then she would watch your back and say, hmm, you know, uh, I would focus on this thing. This seems to be happening. I remember you having problems with that. You know, make sure you weren't. You, you wouldn't be doing it all alone, so to speak, or somebody would be watching your back. That's immediately extremely revealing because I always have an expectation of doing things on my own because I sure. kind of basically always have. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't think of that one at all. That's a complete revelation to me. Right. And, and that's, I, I would imagine because you haven't seen that kind of stuff modeled, right? No. Right. I mean, um, you know, I mean, in my family, we, we watch each other's backs and, and we know each other well enough that, uh, we can dismantle anything that may be problematic that that's rising up and we trust each other enough to know it's being done in a positive spirit and in the spirit of helping and all that. So, um, you, you won't be doing it alone. So I think that's uh, that's important. And um, uh, so if it's is it so is it sex? If it's not, and let's just go with what you said before. You may change mm. your mind over time, but if it's if it's not for kids, then it's 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 sex for pleasure that that you would want, right? Yeah, that's right. Because that's the difference between dating and having a friend of either gender. It's the naughty bits, right? Yeah, it is. All right. Okay, so if you were to say to a woman, um, I would like you to be a friend I have sex with, would that be a fairly accurate description of your goal? No, actually, it wouldn't. Um, because I think actually I enjoy having female friends more than I do male friends, which is not to devalue um, the male friends that I have. But when I think of friendship, I always think of it in terms of having uh, having friendships with women, uh, completely platonic, non-sexual ones. Uh, I think just because I find them easier to communicate to. I've never really had, or I've literally only just now started to have uh, male friends. Actually, I've literally only just started to have friends. Um, I am kind of, I'm still... The idea of kind of going out outside the house, out into the world, and interacting people and talking with people on any kind of basis, you know, daily or, or otherwise, is still quite sort of fresh and novel to me, um, and it's very nice. Um, so no. Um, so did you not have a lot of contact with your dad when you were growing up uh, after your parents split up? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, well, that the yes and no part applies to pretty much all of my family. Um, but going back to what we were saying before, no, um, I would definitely be seeking some kind of normal established relationship. I don't honestly care about marriage, so we can kind of rule that one out. But, um, you know, everything that goes with marriage, but without all the the legal certificates. Right. Okay. Um, so what are you looking for then if it's not a friend to have sex with? 
Good question. I don't know if I can define it in any more accurate terms, and I think that's part of why I'm here. Well, it, sex is the key, right? Because that's the differentiator yeah. between romance and non-romance. So sex is obviously a cornerstone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to make it reductionist like, you know, organ insertion equals, right, relationship. Uh, but the sexuality is what you're looking for that's different than what you were looking for before, because that's the dating environment is sexuality, right? Yeah, um, I'm looking for validation in a lot of different ways. Um because there's been a massive, massive absence of validation in my life, and it's only recently started to become a thing. You know, bit by bit, I'm crossing off oh each dear. different. Oh, oh, oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. What am I doing? Oh, James. I'm sorry. I got to interrupt you. So you're looking. You said you're, I'm looking for validation because there's been a massive lack of validation in my life. Hmm. Hmm. So who are you looking to fix your past for you? <laughs> and how are they going to do it? And why would they? Why would they? Because I'm just so gosh darn lovely. Why wouldn't they? Um, well, you're not lovely <laughs> if you're expecting other people to backfill your tragedies um, and make everything better. You're gonna agree, you're gonna end up hating someone like that. That's a recipe for disaster because they can't do it. Yeah, I don't know that yet because I've kind of not done it. Well, but this is what you said, right? You said, "Well, I want someone to validate me because I've." not had a lot of validation. Like, if I grew up hungry and I say, well, I want someone to give me all the food I could possibly eat because I grew up hungry, I'm just going to get fat. No, You I can't did. get anyone to backfill and solve your history. I mean, you can go to a therapist. I know you have in the past. You go to a therapist and you can get someone to, to, to give you help with, with processing things about the past. But a romantic relationship is not an emergency room, right? It's not, you know, I need 20 cc's of plasma stat because I've got a sucking chest wound or something, right? You, you, you can't fix your history by screwing people. No, I, I didn't expect um, that I could. I like to think that I'm self-aware enough that I wouldn't try that. I'm just going by what you said, right? <laughs> Right, So you can say, well, I would never think of doing that or I wouldn't do that. But you said, I'm hoping to get – I want to get validation because it's validation has been massively lacking in my history. Mm. Well, and I'm saying that if you expect someone to give you validation that's going to make up for the lack of validation you experienced in your history, you're going to get somebody who's very damaged and very damaging and you're going to end up really disliking that person because they're not going to be able to solve the problem and you're going to feel like they're withholding something from you and it's going to reproduce the lack of validation that you had in the past because you're just not going to get it. That's more of an addiction for repetition of a lack of validation than it is a desire to solve it. And right? is, The solution is not in someone else. Which brings me back to the original point. Um, one of the most useful phrases I've picked up recently, and it came from you, um, is that there's no external solution to the problem of self-esteem. But then I say self-esteem can't exist within a vacuum. So how do Actually, you... Actually, technically I said there's no external solution to the problem of insecurity. Are they, are they insecurity and self-esteem not... Well, they're not exactly the same thing, but they're kind of mutual or connected, aren't they? Yeah, I just want to be really precise. Um, I've had a conversation with, I think it was a psychologist against the concept of self-esteem, where it's a very good point. But anyway, it's not, not neither here nor there. But um, yeah, you 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 can't you can't get someone else to fix 
your lack of validation. You can't get a dating partner to fix that. Which is why uh, because, I want- because because you're, you you can't be honest about that, and so you'll end up manipulating that person, and and the only people who'll respond to that manipulation are low quality people. So right. it's a guarantee to get you the lowest quality specimen that you can find, right? Because you can't come and say, well, the reason I want to date is I'm traumatized by a lack of validation and I need someone to pour resources into me and validate me so that I can feel better about having not been validated in the past, right? I mean, any any woman with any self-confidence and, and maturity and, and self-knowledge will say, uh, no, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm sorry that you weren't validated in the past, but I can't fix what your mommy broke, right? Well, this is what I mean when I say I want this to be preemptive to dating because I'm aware, I'm aware of these problems. Um, and I am aware of the problems that they pose in the future as far as connecting with new people goes. So I'm on, I'm on a mission to fix all of the areas in my life, uh, leading up to dating. Like dating is going to be the very last thing that I get to or, or my current list of things that I need to do. So, you know, I'm quite deliberate. Why, why is your, why is your dating last on your list? Um, because I need everything else. In order to represent value to people, I need all of the other things preceding that. Uh, in order to but there's there's a sorry there's there's a cost. There's an opportunity cost for delaying it, right? Which is that the mm. older you get, the fewer quality people you're going to find. I'm aware of single. that, and that does frighten me. And I'm a, I think I'm especially aware of that for the area that I'm living in, which is what I was saying about um about looking online, I may have to do that because I simply may not find the kind of people that I'm looking for where I live. Yeah, I mean, you're not obviously middle-aged, but you're not a young man. You're a very young man anymore, and so you're going to start heading into the, you know, the burning uterus 30s of you know, desperation, single motherhood, and otherwise oddly constituted women uh, that is like, oh, why is this car for sale? Oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> I get it. There's a gaping hole where the uh, where the floor should be, or something, right? And so that's that's a challenge, right? So it, it, this is not even if you don't want to have kids. If you do want to have kids, or if you find out you want to have kids, then you got to move quick because you want a woman who's not wildly dissimilar in age to you. If you want to have some chance of success. Uh, in your marriage or the greatest chance of success in your marriage. One of the strong predictors of divorce is a significant age gap between men and between husband and wife. And so you want someone close in age to you, but you know, if you want to start dating someone who's closer in age to you, you want to make sure you do so before the fertility window starts to close in the sort of early to mid thirties. And uh, so I wouldn't say that this is something that once I get all my I's dotted and T's crossed, I can holler that, right? I don't think that's a valid thing to, to approach because you've got some time pressure. And I thought I was doing so well up until this point. <laughs> Wait, I'm not sure what that means. Um, it's a deflationary statement that I just want to know where that came from. <laughs> where does it come from? Um, I, um, I'm, I'm, to be honest, quite pleased with myself right now. Um, I think things have been going very well for me recently. You know, for having been uh, going so badly for so long. And, you know, I'm aware that I'm running out of time. I'm not exactly sure what that even means because I understand what kind of running out of time fertility-wise means for women. But, you know, obviously men, uh, we don't have the same experience of it. Um, uh, well, no, men's sperm quality does deteriorate with age. But um, uh, I don't it, it's because you want to be somewhat close in age to your wife, uh, at least ideally. You know, it's not always the case, but ideally... 
uh, and therefore you have you know you're sort of lockstep a little bit with female fertility if you want the age proximity. I don't know if age proximity is that big of a deal to me, actually. Um, oh, we do. Mike, do you have that, oh. Andy? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. We just, we just, we just, <laughs> Mike, come on, quick. <laughs> Pull up the infinite database of FDR annoying information. Yeah, I'm working on um, the truth about marriage and divorce right now and pouring through all types of studies, so you caught me at a particularly interesting time to have this information. But uh, husband nine or more years older than his wife is one of the largest predictors of uh, divorce risk. And the relationship not succeeding. Normally, successful age ranges in a relationship. Let me just pull it up. Since I think if the man is a few years older than the wife, that normally works out better. It's, that's um, fine. Yeah, I think three years is what people have termed as kind of the ideal gap, just based on statistics and how things. If there's going to be out. a gap, yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if things are going to work out, but it does tend to work better if the man is a couple years older, and. Uh, if there are vast age differences, that doesn't work out well. And the woman being older is a risk for um, a divorce risk as well. So, all right. So just just something to keep in mind. We try to give you as many uh, facts as possible. And you do, you don't have to be perfect to date. You don't have to have all your issues solved. To, to date. You just can't expect the other person to solve your issues, right? I mean, they can listen, you can be in conversation, and they can be part of your process of working on your issues, but they can't, you know, you, and you know that, right? I don't yeah. repeat that again. So, so yeah, I just don't, don't wait for perfection, right? To, to look for heaven is to live here in hell, as the song uh, says. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, yeah, so then I guess the question is, so in terms of to, to date, I mean, uh, you you will date monogamously and with an uh, with the goal of lifelong pair bonding in the long run. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so I mean, and you I think you said you don't want the the paperwork or whatever. Um, I I think in most societies, uh, you you get that whether you like it or not. Like if you live together, eventually, I think you're just considered equivalent to marriage and common law or whatever. So that's just something to be aware of uh, when it comes to protecting yourself. For heaven's sakes, yeah, d don't move in with any woman. Um, and until you've talked to a lawyer and and really understand what it means to move in and uh, just at what point you may have um, what a what a business partner of mine used to call years ago asset mitosis right <laughs> which is where you may end up parting with half your assets including it seems one of your testicles so um, so just be aware of that you know the fact that you don't want to get married doesn't mean that you don't end up married uh, in the eyes of the law. So just be be aware of that, um, and and if you do end up wanting to, pay, like if you do, if you do want to lift the woman with the woman to the point where you're going to get married, uh, in the eyes of the law, then you might as well get married ahead of time because again, if you live together before you get married, your chances of a successful marriage drop significantly. Uh, so again, just trying to keep keep you safe uh, from from anything negative that might happen out of out of a breakup where there's. Uh, assets uh, on the line. So, uh, so in terms of what value you can provide uh, mm. to a woman, yeah. um, well, I mean, there are the moral virtues, which I'm sure I don't need to go over in any particular. You know, courage, sensitivity, uh, and uh, honor, uh, honesty, uh, and uh, you know, all of the general, both moral and aesthetic pluses. 
that you can bring uh, for a woman. And you want to be as open and honest about your strengths and, and what you bring to bear as, as possible, uh, you know, without necessarily being a, a, a braggart or anything like that. But uh, uh, you want to bring that stuff to bear as, as quickly as possible on a relationship to find out if the woman gets wet for virtue, right? That's, that's important. You, you want her to moisten up because you're a good guy. In other words, I mean, because that says a lot, right? I mean, who a woman responds to sexually uh, tells you a lot about, tells you, I think, just about everything about about her character, and uh, I think that's uh, an important thing to 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 recognize. So, you know, lead with your virtue, I suppose, uh, and that's your aphrodisiac. And if it is an aphrodisiac, then hang tight to that woman, and you really can't go wrong from there. Uh, so, you know. Work on on your moral courage and and your integrity and all the things that we all have to sort of keep keep working on from a variety of perspectives and uh, then of course um, make her happy, or right make her happier for for being with you. I mean I know that sounds like really like a, a re- reduced to 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 bare essences argument, but you know why why do people buy a tablet because they believe that their lives will be better with that computer tablet. And why do they then not return the computer tablet? Well, because lo and behold, their life is better because they have that computer tablet. And it's better than the, you know, maybe a couple of hundred dollars that they spent to buy that computer tablet. They'd rather have the computer tablet than the couple of hundred bucks. And it's a net positive for them, so they keep the tablet, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and and so you you simply have to be someone who makes the other person's life better for you being in it. They're, oh. they're happier. Uh, they are. Uh, they laugh more. Uh, they are more comforted. Uh, they um, have a, a, a positive companionship. Uh, they are happy when you phone. Uh, they are look forward to talking to you. You are a net positive in their life. And again, I know that sounds like a really oh well, obviously right. But but people usually don't look at it that way. Like it's it's a transaction. And like all transactions, there are elements of economics involved. And just because money isn't changing hands, at least I hope, uh, then um, you can end up in Eastern Europe with some webcam girl, which I think has happened before on this show. But uh, I remember um, that one. Yeah. So there are going to be – there are economic transactions. She's giving up uh, time. Uh, she's giving up opportunities to meet uh, other men. She's giving up every single day. She's giving up youth and beauty which are significant coinage for women and, and for men too, to some degree, but more so uh, to some degree for women. So she is fading, right, in terms of sexual market value every day that she's with you. So she's not, she, she, you know, she, so you have to be, particularly when you're not in your 20s anymore, you have to be the guy that she wants to settle down with or has the potential to settle down with. Otherwise, she's an idiot and you shouldn't date her, right? In other words, if she's saying, well, I really want to have kids, and so I'm going to squander the last and most potent areas of my sexual value, um, you know, dating with a guy I don't even know if I want to settle down with, uh, then she's just an idiot. And I'm like, I don't even know what to say, but, you know, I I don't have a lot of instructions for, for humanity in this world. But I would say that don't breed with idiots would definitely be one of them. In fact, that would probably be... be be the number one like don't strangle hobos don't breed with idiots and i'm not even sure which which one of those is at the top but uh, <laughs> it's pretty high up there so um so she's you know a woman who's uh, close to age she's given up a lot 
to, to be with you and just make it worth her while. That's all. You know, my wife can dump me tomorrow and, and you know, she's very attractive and, and very funny and very warm-hearted and very hardworking. And, man, she could she could snap her fingers and have a lineup. And I'm aware of that, so I need to bring, you know, every day. It, the job doesn't end, right? It's not like, ah, I've been working at this place for, I can have how long have we been married now? 12 or 13 years? Oh, we've known each other 12 or 13 years. We've married 11 or 12. So um, I don't sit there and say, well, you know, she's, she's committed now. So I guess, I, no, I mean, you don't work at a place for 12 years and say, well, you know, 12 years in a day, I'm just going to stop working because, you know, you're going to get fired. So you just, and I, I do this with, with this show too, right? I mean, 3,000 plus shows, you know, I've got to keep pushing the envelope about things that we can talk about and things that we can be honest and open about and not keep doing the same show. I mean, some people can do that. It's not, that's not me. So, you know, I know the people who've listened to a lot of these shows could go be listening to other people, talk about other things and what's going to pull them back in here. Well, I, don't want to be someone who's talking about the same stuff, takes the same approach. I don't want to be the guy, oh, I know what Steph's going to say about this. I mean, I don't want to be wildly unpredictable. Squirrel, right? I mean, I don't want to be wildly unpredictable, but I also don't want to be wildly predictable. And it's a real challenge to continue to provide value after 10 years and 3,000 shows. You know, it's important because I'm not telling jokes, right? John Stewart, you know, come and listen to the guy because, you know, you like to lick the liberal tentpole, but also because, you know, he's funny. And he'll make you laugh, and I don't have that, right? I mean, I'm not a comedian. But uh, uh, so you just need to focus on, am I providing value to this person? Now, of course, you don't want to be a slave. You're not getting paid. Uh, so, you know, a, a comedian talks to an audience because the audience is paying for his time. So that's what they're giving back. Now, when there's no money exchanging hands then she also has to be someone who brings value to you. And and you, your life is better because she's in it. And it's the most better that you're willing to risk. Right? That There's an old joke about, like, you know, this woman says, well, why can't I get my boyfriend who's 30 to commit to get married? And her mom says, oh, you see, it's because he's concerned that he gets married to you and, you you know, you, you, you have kids you grow up together, you raise your children together, they have grandkids, you grow old together, and then you're 90 years old, you're walking along a beach, and a bunch of Playboy bunnies come up and say, hey, come join us in the hot tub. And he can't because he's married, right? And and that's obviously kind of a, a joke. And of course, it's insulting to men and so on um, because women are far more likely to destabilize and end a marriage than men are. But... Uh, that kind of surprises me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I remember rightly, uh, it's over 70%. I think the number is 73, but in, in many areas, 70 to 73% of divorces are initiated by women. Well, uh, women are like unbelievable homewreckers. I'm sorry? I would have thought it was more like 50-50. No. Mm. No, it is uh, 73-27, I guess, or 70-30 or 72-28 or whatever it is, but uh, it depends on the locale, mm. but... It's significant to the number of... 66, uh, 34 towards women in the U.S. Yeah, we did get one. There was one area that was higher than that. Is it 66, Six, 34? 66 is what I got. Okay, good, good. And that, so, yeah, so this, if that's the average, then I don't know if the 73 was someplace in the U.S., so it's higher and lower, but it's certainly not 50-50 for sure. Um, 
So, uh, so yeah, just focus on whether she can provide value, whether you can provide value, and uh, the maximum value that you know you're willing to risk, right? Like I, I mentioned this, what was it? I think this Ever Levine got married to some guy, some rocker or whatever, Chad and Kroger. I was like, sorry, it was uh, Chad Kroger from Nickelback, wasn't it? No, it was the. Oh. He's actually just went in for vocal surgery. I think. Hope he's doing all right. Oh but no, no, it was. It was, um, it was a, she was married before. I think that was her second marriage. So the blink, uh, uh, Derek Wibley from yes. um, Some Forty One. Oh. Derek Wibley. That is such a funny name. Oh, Some Forty One has a specific meaning in, in Britain, right? Which means sort of weak-willed and and uh, pathetic. Anyway, uh, it's like getting married to Biff Pathetic or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, anyway, so I was reading that as many years ago, and <laughs> I read that. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> you know, like, because she's yeah, cute as two buttons, very talented, and all that, right? And I'm sitting there. I remember I was, I was just finished a workout. I was sitting in the having a, a coffee in the in the uh, I don't know the little room where you can have coffee. And I was reading that. I was like, ah, you know, like yeah, because I'm about to meet Avril Lavigne, and we're gonna date and get married. Like that's gonna happen, right? But you know, part of me is like, ah. She's she's taken. Oh, that's a shame. Because <laughs> you know, I guess I'll take her off my list. You know, like because that's important. Have that list. But um, so yeah, I mean, if if the woman of your dreams is about to show up three days from now, then going on a date tomorrow doesn't really make much sense. But so we all have to make our calculations about who we can get and uh, who we can keep, uh, and and so on. And those calculations get more complicated as we age. Obviously, now they're complicated, particularly for young men, because it seems like I mean, this is certainly the trend when I was younger. I think the trend has increased more that younger women are like, relentlessly shallow in who they want to date, and uh, so are men. But we're supposed to be because we're looking for fertility indicators, whereas women are supposed to be looking for resource providers, which has more to do with consistency and virtue and intelligence to some degree than it does with uh, the number of sit-ups you can do in any given day. But anyway. Um, so the sexual market value slides down when we get into our 30s for both uh, sexes, particularly for women, though. And, you know, bird in the hand, so to speak, is worth worth two in the bush. So we all have to make that rational calculation of, well, maybe, you know, there's an IQ 220 supermodel about to walk into my life tomorrow. But this person here is pretty great. And uh, we all have to make those calculations. And hopefully we calculate reasonably well. We'll never know for sure, but uh, um, th- those are, I think, the things that, that you need to think about. In other words, don't wait for everything to be perfect because that'll never happen. But you have to make a calculation of, you know, given who I am, given where I'm at in life, given what I can bring and what I can provide, um, this person will will do just nicely. Uh, and then you work at making it as great as possible from there. Um, so does that does that make any sense or help at all? That does make sense. Um, I guess the issue that I'm faced with is kind of the age that I am literally versus the age of where I'm at are two really quite separate things. I mean, I've only just, I I would describe myself as only just having entered into an adult world. Um, I've been kind of trapped in the, trapped in the floaty black sort of middle of nowhere for a very long time. Um, I mean, to put examples on it, uh, like if you didn't know, uh, did you read? Because it says on the uh, on the sheet how old I am, doesn't it? 
I did. I didn't want to mention it if you didn't want yeah, right. to. Um, no, we'll, we'll do that in a second. Um, so if I were to describe kind of what I what I have now, um, I've not long left college. I finished college a couple of months ago. Um, I'm working my first, uh, working my second job rather. I'm first time working outside of the house. Uh, I've had one relationship in the past. Um, and I just got my provisional driver's license. How old would you say I was? Oh, I would assume, uh, you know, early to mid twenties. And now my actual age. Yeah, it's, it's 30, right? <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I've been in the same boat. I mean, I guess 15 years ago, I was dating an older woman. Uh, I did, uh, I, I was, I mentioned this story before, but for those who haven't heard it, I was uh, picking up some sushi to, to eat. And uh, I saw this wonderfully attractive woman who was um, sitting in, in the restaurant. And she was eating alone. And uh, I just said, oh, can I get my food to stay? And I went over and I said, listen, you're eating alone. I'm going to eat alone. Let's eat alone together. And she laughed. And we sat down. We started chatting. We ended up dating. And we had a relationship. And I was I was in therapy. And I was, this was 15 years ago. I was 33. And she was seven years older than I was. So she was 40. And I just, I remember having talks with her and saying, gosh, you know, I mean, if you want to have kids, yeah, it's kind of now or never. And I'm just becoming who I am. I'm just, I was going through like really radical changes in my life, professionally and personally with my family. I'm just radical changes. And I said, gosh, I don't know. I really don't feel like I'm ready to have kids yet, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say at the age of 33. Like, I get that. But, I mean, um, it was a big a time of big transition, and I'm certainly glad that I waited. And I said, I can't, I'm not I, – I can't have children because I've only just become myself, and I don't want to lose myself in parenthood. And there is a certain loss of identity in parenthood. It's, it's natural because you're so focused on, on the children. So um, – I get that sort of feeling like there's you're sort of behind the times uh, a little bit, if that makes sense. It does. So, um, but but you're growing, and and that's going to put you miles ahead again of the of the majority. Yeah, I look forward to that part. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, the positive values you can bring, you know, perspective, wisdom, curiosity, listening, virtue, knowledge, philosophy, self-knowledge, uh, sense of humor, whatever it is, right? A sense of humor doesn't mean you tell jokes and make people laugh. It just means that you can put things in perspective, right? I mean, well, to there's have this a... comedic tripe where they make a joke about a recent disaster and they say, oh, too soon, too soon. You know, it's like today's tragedy is tomorrow's comedy and uh, having that kind of perspective can be very helpful i'm sorry uh I'm, i apologize james go ahead no i was gonna say um i mean one thing i noticed particularly about stand-up comedians is it's their job to tell it like it is um and i forget what people say about having a sense of humor but it's it's to do with laughing at yourself or not taking yourself seriously so is is humor more of a self-reflection tool than anything else that, that's a big question um, I, I believe that humor is a logic trainer, uh, but that's because a lot of humor has to do with uh, inverses in logic. And um, so I, that's that's a big topic, sort of what is humor. I've sort of been mulling notes over for a podcast series on that, at least from my thought. But um, I, I, to me, humor is more about being good-humored. 
uh, and not catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is exhausting, you know, like, oh, this disaster is going to happen. Oh, this disaster is going to happen or whatever. And um, so I would say that uh, just being good humored and uh, helping people to not, you know, there's an old Paul Reiser thing about, you know, being a couple is, well, when I go crazy, you talk me out of my tree. When you go crazy, I talk you out of your tree. And that, uh, that I think that's a little bit too codependent for my taste. But, um, you know, helping people have perspective, uh, helping people to not uh, get wrapped up in unnecessary drama and, and so on, I think those things can all be very helpful. I guess the trouble I have with that is I don't actually think I'm funny anymore. And I say anymore um, because I didn't. I definitely used to be funny. I used to have a very, very dry sense of humor. Like I was, I was so kind of dry and deadpan with it. You know, people kind of couldn't tell if I was. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wasn't. I've never had that problem. Bloody <laughs> <Like> colonies! <laughs> it's British humor. We dress up, and we—you don't know if we're joking. <laughs> but yeah, people wouldn't be able to tell if I was being serious or not. Um, and I, I kind of wouldn't reveal it to myself. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Am I being serious or not? I'd kind of, I'd almost play on it. Um, but you know, people who knew me or very few of them, um, you know, they were endlessly amused by it uh, and they got it, but I just seem to have lost that. Um, and I don't seem to be able to draw on in, uh, draw on any, any kind of humor reserves anymore. And the same thing goes for fun. Um, you know, one of the things that frightens me most about entering into dating is people are going to ask you basic questions about yourself. And an obvious one is going to be, what do you do for fun? And I have no idea because I don't know what fun is. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's a challenge. <laughs> that's a challenge. Um, well, I, I think that you probably lost your humor because of a variety of reasons. And I would assume it has something to do with a fear of negative consequences. You know, the one thing that's true of, I think, some of the best comedians is they're fucking fearless. You know, watch some of the greats at work, and I'm thinking in particular of George Carlin. I mean, listening to him talk about religion, listening to him talk about government, listening to him, I mean, the, the man had, like, serious balls. And so it's less to do with wit and more to do with whether or not you're apologetic. Yeah, I mean, just, I think that there's a frankness about comedians. They, I talked about this with, with Joe Rogan back, I think, the first time that we, we talked together, but it, it really is to do with what, what everyone's thinking, but no one dare express. And there is a fearlessness to comedians. And I'm sure it happens not just purely innately, but it happens because they, they work at it. And I'm sure there are some comedians who are like, ooh, is that too far? And they're just like, no, fuck it, I'm going there, right? And there is a relief. You know, one of the reasons people laugh is there's a relief, a release of tension. And the release of tension is that other people are, are, are thinking what nobody is saying. There's a huge relief in that. There's an old line from a movie called Shadowlands where a guy says, we read to feel that we're not alone. We read to know that we're not alone. And comedy is a way of us saying to other people, no, you're not alone. Like I just had this conversation about race, intelligence, genetics, and all this sort of stuff. And we all think about race. And we all have concerns about race. And we all have occasionally said, what the hell is wrong with everything? And the fact that 
I'm willing to talk about it. Someone else is willing to talk about it. I mean, we all have had thoughts where we've tried to wrestle with the challenges of race and, and of culture and success and failure. And I'm just wrestling with the same things that everyone else is. I'm just willing to talk about it. And I'm honest about what I think I might know. I'm honest about the vast majority of things that I don't know. But I'm committed to being as honest as I can about what's going on in my mind. There's a relief. For, there's a release of tension. There's a relief for for people like this Dylan Roof fellow was constantly hearing about blacks being victims of crimes, right? So he was hearing about that. And this Trayvon Martin thing was one of the things that set him off. And then he types into black on white crime and he comes across, uh, you know, the guy who writes uh, like white girl bleed a lot and stuff like that. And he comes across the knockout game and he comes across like all these other things and these these massive examples of black and white violence and he kind of freaks out and he goes haywire because that's not part of our conversation about race i'm not going to turn this conversation into one about race i'm just sort of pointing out that if we did have more of an open and honest and fact-based conversation about race he could participate in that conversation and may have gone mental in other ways but probably wouldn't have gone mental in that way and so comedians talk about things that everyone else is thinking but no one dare express. This goes all the way back to the ancient world where jesters were allowed to make fun of the king. And and if you ever want to see this in, in incredibly poetic action, just look at uh, the fool in King Lear who tells this mad, crazy megalomaniacal king some extremely bitter truths in the form of jests and jokes. And the king keeps him around because he's able to make these incredibly pointed comments about the king's ridiculous foolishness and vanity, he's able to make these pointed comments at the king. Ah, my king, thou shouldst not have been old before thou were wise. Uh, and he makes these incredibly pointed jokes. He's able to get away with it because laughter disarms people and uh, allows them to accept the truth that otherwise they might find too painful or too volatile. And so a lot of times we lose our humor when we lose our courage. And when we are afraid of offending people or upsetting people, we become very dour. Right? It's like that very old joke, um, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny, right? Uh, that is a joke that has some real truth to it, right? In that uh, because feminism is very much... <laughs> Uh, don't don't offend anyone. Well, of course, except white males and all that, cisgendered scum. But um, uh, there is this you know, the political correctness, right? Chris Rock and, and Jerry Seinfeld and other comedians have talked about reluctance to play the college circuit, right? Because I think Jerry Seinfeld was making a joke about like how people swipe through their phones like a a gay French king, wee wee, you know, and they're swiping to to scroll. And, you know, people are getting pissed off at him for making jokes about a gay French king. And there's this, this horrible humorlessness that comes from a paranoid fear of offense. And the reason that people try and shut down humor is because humor is the last resort of truth. In other words, once comedians stop talking about it, nobody can talk about it. Comedians are like the last and best line of defense for truth. And once comedians say, whoa, 
that's too much. Um, I won't do that material. That's it. I mean, then I guess it's just up to philosophers <laughs> on the internet to talk about these issues. But um, um, humorlessness is a desire for delusion, uh, a desire to protect lies from the light-giving acid of comedy. So, yeah, it's just because you're around a lot of people who don't want to hear a lot of truth, you end up pretty humorless. What is it about humor that women enjoy so much? I mean, it has to be more than just a, a feel-good chemical in the brain that's kind of being provided by somebody else. Well, I mean, women like humor because it denotes confidence, because humor is a form of courage. It denotes intelligence. People are who are... Uh, Comics are, are often very intelligent. I mean, if you, even if you, I mean, someone like George Carlin, I think, was just brilliant, just brilliant. I mean, you watch him do the seven things you can't say on television, you could see this incredibly rapid fire intelligence. And, you know, just little statements he says, you know, like, <laughs> think how dumb the average person is. Well, half of them are dumber than that. I mean, that's <laughs> like, that's like, I don't know, it's just great. And um, so it's a mark of intelligence, it's a mark of confidence. Uh, it it is a mark of um, and men who are unafraid are more likely to get resources, right? Because fearful men are more likely to give way in competition to resources and back away. And so, a willingness to offend people is a mark of a person, a man who can get resources uh, for women. And so, um, I, and, and a man who can make fun of a woman in a way that is positive, that is not embittered, it shows that he doesn't take her so seriously that he's going to be. Um, subservient to her, which is bad for either party in a relationship. So he's not going to be subservient to her. He is going to make fun of her in a way that is I engaging and warm. So he, he's affectionate. Uh, he knows how to uh, be appropriately funny, which is a complex social skill, which again shows social intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, and uh, raw intelligence. Uh, he also is not a pure conformist because he's willing to take a skeptical view of society and point out its foibles and foolishness, which means because he's not a pure conformist, uh, he's again has the potential to be a leader, and the leader, of course, is the ultimate aphrodisiac in terms of resource provision to women. And uh, so, for these and probably about a billion other reasons, and also that laughter is fun, uh, women in particular respond to humor in a very, a very positive way. And as I've also talked about before, uh, men enjoy making women laugh. Not for the Christopher Hitchens way about it. It looks like an orgasm, which I always find him kind of... He's like a satyr when it comes, like this little pointy-eared demon, like the um, like the satyr out of uh, the movie Hercules when it comes to talking about sexuality. But as I've talked about before, um, a, a woman's age really shows when she laughs because that's when you see the laugh lines. And so it's a way for men also to figure out how women, how old women are during that time where it's a little hard to determine without laughter. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know where I where I fit into that. I don't know how that reflects on me or how that affects me. Or more accurately, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> you must have thoughts that you're not expressing, right? That you're afraid to express. You know, I don't even know if I have that. Um, I. While you were talking just then, I was kind of suddenly being struck by this feeling of non-presence. I suddenly started to feel like I'm not, I'm not here anymore. I'm kind of fading into the background. And 
so any moments when I do emerge from that, it's just sort of me delivering a very sort of flat and dull sounding comment, which then kind of prompts off the next, um, the next kind of sequence from you. Um, that's no, how that I, was very honest. You said that you, you felt you vanished, right? Yeah, that part was honest. Right, because I was talking about, and the reason why I think you did that, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know your own experience obviously better than I do, James, but the reason that that occurred for you is that I was talking about what women find attractive in terms of comedy and why women find comedy so attractive, and because you don't feel you can be funny, you are vanishing from the sexual arena in that time, right? I am. Like, oh, well, if you have to be funny to get a woman... I can't be funny, therefore I'm going to vanish from this aspect of the conversation, right? Speaking of existence, um, and non-existent, kind, kind of moving on, to, um, going on to a different area of topic, um, I'm not diagnosable as bipolar, but I, recently I have experienced things as far more, of, through, kind of through the perspective of a bipolar person, because, um, for years and years and years, I was just emotionally flatlining. I wasn't feeling anything at all. I certainly wasn't externalizing or expressing anything. And then now recently, because my life started to come together, it started to become something and I've started to exist. I keep getting these big kind of peaks and dips and troughs in emotions going up and down in a very compressed space of time. And I'm trying to relate and relay that to how I experience that around other people. Um, I mean, this weekend in particular, I was out with friends. There was a big, um, a big summer festival here today, uh, and it just started going last night. And I was out with friends last night, and I just, I felt completely invisible. I felt like I didn't need to be there, like I was providing no value. Um, and then today it was completely different. You know, I felt like I was, I met some new people today, um, and got on just fine with them. And, I felt present and I felt visible and I keep sort of fading in and out of in exi- uh, of existence like I'm becoming transparent and then and then visible again and I guess it stems from years and years of being invisible and now kind of like a hologram I'm just sort of starting to spark and 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 crackle and fade into into visibility but I still have this issue where I feel the most alive and the most like myself when no one else can see me and i feel the most invisible and non-existent when people can see me Mm. right yeah and i think that's probably because you are missing the other component to humor which is uh, anger i am definitely missing that um i know my parents quite deliberately engineered me to be unable to express anger, probably for their own convenience. Um, and it's, I've certainly had, I'm not able to express anger outwardly. Maybe I'm just starting to get a handle on that. I'm just starting to get better at it. But uh, I have, for my life thus far, been deathly afraid of inconveniencing people with my anger. And likewise, been very much afraid of confrontation. And the relationships I've, or relationship I've ended up in subsequently is completely indicative of that. Right, right. No, I mean, a, a woman should value and respect a man's anger because a man's anger is partly how he's going to get resources. And uh, a, a man who has no 
expression of anger at all is not going to have the necessary fuel to stand up for himself and to fight for what is right and what is needed in the world. So, um, I mean, I don't know. I guess there are some women maybe who are attracted to guys who have no outward show of anger. Maybe they feel that they'll control these guys or whatever. It's like, okay, mommy, you know, like uh, that's not the relationship that you want as a mature adult is a guy with no spine that you can control. And those relationships end up being, I think, like literal hell for both, uh, for both parties. Uh, so, um, I think that uh, anger is, uh, is, is, I've got a whole podcast called The Joy of Anger. Anger is very important and very healthy and very necessary for the world. It is inconvenient for some people in the world. Well, fuck. I mean, I don't remember signing a contract when I was born called, I'm going to be so fucking convenient that the world will not even know I was here. You know, water that is room temperature, you barely feel when you put your finger in it. I don't want to be room temperature. I don't want to be convenient. I don't want to be boring. I want to be myself. I want to think. I want to speak. I want to listen. I want to correct. I want to reason. I want to question. And uh, yeah, 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 it's inconvenient. Well, fuck that. You know what was inconvenient to me, society? Government schools. You know what else was inconvenient to me? A legal system that helped drive my father out of the country and around the world because it was impossible for him in many ways to continue to be my father in the environment that was where my parents were divorcing. That was, you know, somewhat inconvenient uh, for me. It was also kind of inconvenient for me that in the halls of higher education here in the noble socialist ice fortress of Canada, it was pretty hard to have any free market rationalist objectivist views. Uh, it was not hugely convenient for me uh, for that. So I don't remember society getting all kinds of fucked up and guilty and feeling bad about how inconvenient it was for me to have shitty schools, a bad legal system. Uh, I don't remember society getting all kinds of bothered by the fact that it kept screwing up the economy to the point where it was a yo-yo sometimes getting work. I don't remember that. I also don't remember society getting all kinds of fucked up about the inconvenience, say, of giant, massive, soul and generation destroying national debts. You know, that was kind of inconvenient to be born into that level of debt and have the continual acidic eating away at one's heart and muscle effects of that kind of debt uh, that that uh, occurred when I was uh, growing up and is occurring even more for uh, younger people. I don't remember society saying, well, you know, it's pretty inconvenient for these kids that school lets out at 3.15 in the afternoon, but parents don't get home until 6. That's really inconvenient. I don't know that it's, you know, it's not very convenient for single moms or any family for that matter that there's like two and a half months of no school over the summer. That's not really very convenient for the families. Neither is it very helpful for the children who have two and a half months to forget everything that they learned at a time when retention is not the number one priority of the child's brain. And I could go on and on like this ad infinitum, but I don't remember society being all kinds of fucking bothered about the inconvenience of my life and my childhood. So the idea that society, now that I'm grown up and have my own fucking voice, the idea that society should be like, oh, what you're saying is inconvenient and inconvenience is bad. Hey, I remember my first 30 fucking years. 
I don't think anybody gave a shit about how inconvenient those were for me. So excuse me if I don't give a fucking rat's ass about how inconvenient what I'm saying is to you, society as a whole, because I learned something early, young, that has stuck with me forever. When you first meet someone, treat them the very best you can. And after that, you treat them the way they treat you. And when I first met society, when I bounded out of the playroom and into society, I was like, hey, let's hug. Whoa, the fuck is going on? The hell is going on with society? Well, this is really inconvenient. Well, this is really shitty. I don't like this. I don't like that. I'd voice my complaints. I got caned. I got detention. I got lines. I got shit on. I got threatened with being held back. I got failed. Oh, so society says, fuck you to inconvenience. Oh, that's a great lesson. So then when I grow up, I don't have to worry about being inconvenient to society. Oh, but society is also massively hypocritical as well. So society says, fuck you when you're a kid and a young man and a young woman. Because if the things that you want are inconvenient to the teachers' unions and inconvenient to the divorce lawyers and inconvenient to the parents of the priests and inconvenient to everyone. Hey, can I not be born into massive debt? No, we got to buy votes. Shut up. Sorry, that I, we, don't even, we don't even care that it's inconvenient. And so now that I'm older and I have a voice and I can speak truth to power and I can speak reason to evil and I can speak integrity to corruption... Oh, what are you saying is difficult for people? What are you saying is inconvenient to people? Hey, man, payback's a bitch, ain't it? Payback's a bitch. So what I'm saying is, James, you're probably just not, in a healthy way, angry enough <laughs> to uh, to speak your mind. Is anger a defense against convenience, then, or inconvenience? Is anger a defense against inconvenience? I'm yeah, sorry, maybe I misunderstood that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I if I got it the right way around. Or the, I'm not sure if convenience or inconvenience is the um, is the active word there. Um, but does being angry protect you against being inconvenienced? Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Because people who are annoying and late and inconvenient and unreliable, they piss you off. They piss you off. This ended up being the the subject of I've been to three ther- uh, therapists in the last year, and the very first one, the very first one, I thought was the least effective therapist, um, or he kind of he understood me the least, or had the least amount to to offer. Um, though the main thing that he did pick up on was a, not a lack of anger, but a lack of expression of anger um, in me, and we didn't really make any progress on this. I um, I think once I started college, I left that therapist and then went to went to a different one. Um, but yeah, that was that was pretty much the only thing I took away from those sessions was um was an absence of anger, which I was I was pretty well aware of already. Wait, an absence of what? An absence of anger. You actually said an absence of anguish. I did. I'm not in the least bit aware of that. <laughs> right. You got to listen back to that. That was fascinating. You said an absence of anguish. <laughs> nope, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. I think I am prone to fluffing words or perhaps even dropping words out of sentences altogether and just not noticing Oh, that it. one may not. I'm not a big Freudian, but that may not have been accidental. <laughs> 
an absence of anguish. Well, anguish, of course, is one of the root's causes of anger. It's being hurt is um, what makes us angry. We get angry because our our rights are being violated, our integrity is being violated, our possibilities are being violated, our freedoms are being violated. And uh, anger, you know, if, if you're not angry, you're just not paying attention. There's a lot in the world to be angry about. And it's not the evil that's done fundamentally. I don't give a shit about that. It's just the rank hypocrisy. That's what pisses me off more than anything else. It's what pisses me off more than anything else. It's just the rank hypocrisy. You know, like when rich old fucks, or even poor old fucks, say to the young people, well, you can't cut our pensions because that would lower our standard of living, you see. And lowering our standard of living is really fucking terrible. To which the young people could say, what about the national debt? Does that not lower our standard of living, leaving us tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by the time we turn 18? So where was your fucking concern about lowering other people's standard of living when you were demanding that the government give you all this shit for free and hand, hand us the bill? Who the fuck are you people to complain about lowered standard of livings? Lowered standards of living. You had votes, we didn't. You ran the country into the ground with massive debt. I mean, we can talk about this, but don't you dare try and hold up Ooh, lowering other people's standard of living is bad as any kind of standard. So I'm just pointing out that that uh, we have been talked out of anger for two generations of gynocentric culture. And look what's happened. We have gone completely off the rails as a culture. Because most of us are not allowed to get angry. not allowed to get angry. And uh, particularly the Freedom Club people are not allowed to get angry. Not allowed to get angry. That's abusive. That's verbal. That's mean. That's nasty. You're crazy. No. We have been cut off from anger, most of us, particularly males, for over two generations now. And look what's happened to the world. It's gone completely off its rails. It, it hangs over a precipice that could swallow civilization itself. And we either give up and accept the fall, or we get angry. And the longer you delay anger, the worse it is. And this has been pushed off for 50 or 60 years. So, yeah, we're a little backed up. And there's a lot of anguish. I think what your your accidental word was, was right and true. A lot of anguish at the root of this anger. And... uh we better start speaking about it honestly. And yeah, we've got some complaints. And those complaints are damn valid. And what pisses me off is not that people screwed us. But when we universalize their principles, they claim that we're evil and they're victims. I think what you said before, you said when, um, when I listen to this back, I think the part I'm most uncomfortable about of all of it, not that I'm really uncomfortable, uh, is the part of listening to it back. Um, I've always had a revulsion to hearing my own voice recorded. And I remember this ever since I was, uh, ever since I was a kid, we had, uh, like an old, um, like tape deck with a microphone yeah. built into it. Um, and 
the idea of recording myself onto it and hearing it back was new. It just kind of sends a sort of shudder with like you want you want to get up you want to get up and <laughs> you leave should the do room. it singing. Uh, singing is really <laughs> eye opening <laughs> and ear closing sometimes. But yeah, I know. What you um, mean, so. And I know. But I did... you should listen back to it because you know this is who you are. This is how you sound. I know. Um, I think viewing myself in the third person would be a very, very peculiar thing. And oddly enough, I have no real apprehension about what the comments are going to say. Um, I think because I, I enjoy being judged. I like it. I, I like being judged. I like people. <laughs> you mean YouTube comments? <laughs> yeah. I like people. Oh my God. I mean, I mean, taking, I mean, with some exceptions. Hey, Con. But, uh, you, taking YouTube comments as any kind of valid criticism is like taking monkey screeches as, uh, feedback on the quality of your ballet moves. Uh, I mean, that's just not, uh, <laughs> They've thrown poo. They must not like my painting. It's like, no, they probably just are thinking of bananas. So, um, I was, really- yeah, I mean, I wouldn't worry about YouTube, <laughs> YouTube comments. It's well, mostly just, uh, 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 people, uh, uh, typing with their missing testicles. But go ahead. Um, I, uh, what I was going to say was, I like people to observe me because they can reveal things about me that I can't see. And also, if people can observe me, it means that they can see me. Which means that I'm, which means that I exist, and I take a lot of. Wait, com- if people, you mean uh, if people on YouTube or other people? I guess anybody, uh, any kind of uh, critical observation of me, wherever it comes from. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I think be very skeptical of criticism. Doesn't mean don't ever take it, but I think it's very important to be skeptical of criticism because now I've got a show on this about judging criticism, but I mean, and, and this is sort of be where I have to end up because I've been four hours on the show, but. Uh, um, be very skeptical of critics because uh, a lot of people are not criticizing you because they care about, um, about the quality of, of your life or, or care about you becoming wise or knowledgeable or anything like that. They're just criticizing because uh, they like to have power over others and uh, they like to bully and, and so on, right? I mean, it's it's pretty sad. I mean, just how little intelligent criticism and effective criticism there is. Uh, in the uh, world, and again, there's some people, some exceptions, even in YouTube, but um, it is uh, uh, it is really important to to be very skeptical about about criticism. Well, I guess that's why it's important to have people around you as your critics, people who value your presence, um, to give you necessary feedback, rather than just kind of strangers who have no real vested interest in your existence or success. But yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, um, universal principles and so on. And for those who want to know, it's called um, Podcast 2725, How to Handle Criticism. So so have a listen back, though, and, and let us know what you think of, of this conversation, because I think there's a lot in here, hopefully, that, that's the value and, and that can give you something to, to work towards. But, uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't give up on dating. I mean, uh, you know, I think all the listeners should breed like rabbits, uh, but not with rabbits, necessarily, unless... That's one of the reasons why it's hard for you to find. No, no, no. Southwest England's lots of rabbits. Anyway, um, but uh, will you give us a shout about what you think of this uh, this conversation? Just give us some feedback. Yeah, I can do. Um, I suddenly became very afraid of disappearing again because I felt like the show was about to end at any second. It is. It is. That's not just an irrational fear. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, um, we didn't even we didn't even talk about my family, or in fact. We didn't talk about anything that I came here to talk about, which is awful. Is it awful? Yeah, it is. 
you were talking about um, wanting to provide value in the dating world and how to find how to provide value to a partner. I was, but I don't feel as though I'm any better off. But that's why I mean that's why I say you got to re-listen. Yeah. Because you you will be if you re-listen and and hear a lot of the stuff that I talked about with regards to that. If after re-listening you still think that you got absolutely nothing of value, then um, please give us a shout and we'll 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 take another run at it. So keep us posted. Thank you so much for calling in, everyone. Naturally, I must bookend this as well with freedomainradio.com slash donate to come and uh, help out. There's a reason why we're able to do what we're doing, and that has entirely to do with your green sticky fingers of generosity. So freedomainradio.com slash donate to sign up for something. Just do it. Sign up 5, 10, 20 bucks a month or whatever you can afford. Do it if you don't like it. You can cancel. <laughs> Just see how you feel. I bet you you'll feel great. If you do it, and I'm just trying to make you happy because I'm all concerned about that. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thank you, everyone, so much for a wonderful, wonderful conversation as always. We will talk to you soon.